The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast, coming to you on a nice and cozy Tuesday night on a beautiful October evening. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling great. I'm a sucker for fall. Even though I live in California, I hate summer. I love it when the air starts cooling down. EJ, you've been in the Pacific Northwest, so you've, you've had this kind of nice chill for a while. But I finally got it here down in SoCal, and I'm so happy. And I'm so happy that we had a great week six of football. Uh, There were several really damn good games. We'll talk about all of them this week. And yes, we will talk about some of the, uh, let's just say, disappointing blowouts. Cowboys fans, you might want to avert your eyes for this one. It wasn't pretty for you, but we'll get into all that in today's show. First thing first, though, EJ, how you doing and what are you drinking? I'm fine. Fall is treating me pretty well. A little bit cooler and drippier up here than it is down there. Uh, I was watching the pregame show from California and thinking, yeah, it's pretty nice to stand outside in the sunshine and the breeze. It's a little bit cooler for you. Yeah, it's drippy and foggy up here, but that's okay. Uh, The leaves are down. We are playing football. We are getting to talk about football. We didn't even think that that was necessarily going to happen, so I am fantastic. And in the spirit of things, uh, although the brewery is down by you, this is Stone Brewing out of San Diego, it is a fall-themed beer. It is called the Enjoy By 103120 IPA, has a big picture of a jack-o'-lantern on it. It is a 12-ounce can, and it is 9.4% by volume, so it's a little bit on the scary side. Uh, But I saved it for the pod, and I'm excited about it, and of course... We will have our shots of the week in just a second, but what are you drinking uh, besides our shots of the week? So I'm a, a rather basic Californian this week. I got my red trolley ale, one of my favorite oh. beers. I've had it on the pod before. You can't go this wrong with so it. so good. No, it's so, it's so the good. it's the gold standard for red ales. I every time I have a red ale, I compare it to red trolley. I don't know about you. I mean, you're more of a beer guy than me, but. To me, it's it's perfection. Uh, Red Trolley is very good, but if you come to the Northwest, I will introduce you to uh, Silver City, which is a brewery right over in Bremerton, Washington. Um, Well, Paulsbow officially, but uh, Ridgetop Red Ale, which is one of my all-time favorites, especially if you can find it on tap. It's good in the cans. 
Uh, but off tap, uh, Ridge Top Red Ale will give Red Trolley a run for its money. But Red Trolley, very drinkable, excellent stuff. Well, next time I come up for a Hawks game, uh, you'll have to take me over there. Or we'll a cracking game. Or a cracking game. Either way, I love Seattle sports. They go nuts for sports up there. It's always a great environment. But uh, that being said, let's get to the point after. And first things first, and we'll, we'll touch on him again later in the show, but we did not get to mention uh, Jason Verrett last week, mainly because the Niners got their asses kicked and it didn't seem like the topic that was <laughs> uh, needed to be talked about. But on the other side of the disaster that was Brian Allen versus the Miami Dolphins, Jason Verrett has been playing, oddly enough, not even oddly enough, uh, I guess the only surprising thing is that he's been able to stay healthy. He's always had this talent, but he has come out of relatively nowhere this season to play at an all-pro level. And I want to read you off a stat, EJ, because it's one of the most mind-blowing things that I've seen this season. So the Niners' corners, on the whole, have been kind of rough. They've allowed 648 passing yards between all of them. Verrett has played more coverage snaps than every other corner on the team due to injuries and everything else, but he's been kind of their only consistent guy in the lineup this season. And yet, despite all of those passing yards, he is only responsible for 24 total on the year. He allowed zero this week for reference, but despite all of the damage that Brian Allen did to that secondary last week when they got run out of town by Miami, Jason Verrett gave up virtually nothing and has given up virtually nothing all year long. He's one of my favorite players. I loved him coming out in college. Was really excited to see him get drafted. The only reason he got drafted uh, where he did was his his height. He's 5'9"-ish. And look, there have been very talented shorter corners uh, in the NFL before. Antoine Winfield Sr. comes to mind really feisty guys that play with a very physical edge and Verrett is right in that mold and he got hurt and then he got hurt again (laughs) and then he flashed and then he got hurt again and it was so disheartening because he is a tremendous player yeah absolutely it's like the something you can almost set your watch by so I haven't wanted to bring it up because I haven't wanted to jinx him and I might not be superstitious but I am stitious and <laughs> like he's been playing at a noticeable level for the last couple of weeks. I thought about bringing him up last week on the point after I thought, nope, keep your mouth shut. Cause if you do in this season of horrendous injuries, he'll be next. Sorry. The wait's over. We got to bring up Jason Verrett. He's playing extremely well. You brought up the coverage snap numbers. He's such a force against the run, the screen. He's incredibly instinctive flies around, really physical he's back making an impact and it's it's just a it's a joy to see he's a tremendous player huge pick in the end zone we'll talk about this week but really really good to see Jason Verrett playing healthy football at a high level again yeah and another one I want to bring up um, mainly because I saw his performance this week he was one of the only Colts defensive lineman that that oddly had a good game uh but Grover Stewart last week against Cleveland was somebody that I didn't I don't I don't believe I talked about him but he has quietly become one of the better nose tackles in the league and even though Cleveland did end up getting over 100 yards on the day on the ground I mean Grover Stewart was dominating the one-on-one battle inside against JC Treader who's honestly a key cog one of the biggest 
key cogs for that uh, Cleveland zone run game because the center is always so important in that kind of scheme. And Grover was beating them over and over and over again. And it was tough sledding to get all of those yards. They earned every single one of them. They got nothing cheap because Grover Stewart was winning that one-on-one. And he's done that every single week this year. And uh, he's going to be a free agent in the offseason. I guarantee you he's going to get a lot of money because a good nose tackle is key for a dominant run defense. And uh, for most of the season, at least this year, the, the Colts have been able to rely on him to be that guy. Yeah, as a fan of a team that is short its nose tackle this year because Eddie Goldman opted out and then John Jenkins got hurt, uh, you've seen that in the early season for the Bears. that They have not been great against the middle run. The last couple of weeks have been much better. Bilal Nichols has kind of been bucking up there, and, and they've been stopping the middle run with, with more regularity, let's just put it there. But having that guy like Goldman or, like you said, Grover Stewart, that big guy that can control the center – really drive sort of a three yard wide wedge into the offensive line and say, you're not coming through here. You got to go somewhere else is a really, it's a tremendous key to run defense. And we've seen a lot of teams, uh, Cowboys (coughs) that have not been able to control the middle of the line. And they just got their souls ripped out on Monday night football by this week, Arizona, but other teams have been able to run sort of at will through the middle of the Dallas defense. And again, if you have a guy like Grover Stewart who is locking that position down, it's not going to happen to you as often. You're going to be able to dictate more of what you can do um, or more of what the offense can do and can't do. Um, So yeah, very important player. One more guy I want to mention on the point after before we get rolling is Preston Williams. Been making plays all year for Miami, uh, mostly between the 20s. He's only got three touchdowns. He had one this week, but he's just been making solid plays. He's kind of that glue guy uh, for receiving mm-hmm. core, and, and Fitzmagic has found him over and over again. Every week he's made two or three or four uh not necessarily big plays or flashy plays, but important plays, first downs, conversions, catch it along the sidelines and get out to stop the clock so we can get a field goal. Preston Williams has just been doing that kind of a thing. We highlighted his teammate, Miles Gaskin, last week for doing a similar kind of a thing. Again, not racking up gaudy stats, but keeping the sticks moving, uh, getting the yards he needed to convert, move the chains, just making things work for an offense that's finding a way to be fairly efficient. And we hadn't mentioned his name yet. He had a touchdown this week. It's worth mentioning. Yeah. Preston Williams, I, you know, there was a lot of excitement in Dolphins camp for him. Some people were worried if he's going to be healthy to start the year because he was coming off that ACL, but he recovered in only nine months. And, you know, we, we kind of heard little rumblings that, he was uh, he was looking phenomenal in camp, and that Fitzpatrick obviously loved him because Fitz loves big targets, and uh, good to see him come back healthy and, and kind of you know hit the ground running. Curious to see what he's going to do with Tua now that Tua is named the starter in two weeks' time after the bye week. But uh, I we know Tua; he's really really accurate, especially over the middle of the field, and I think he's going to make excellent use to Preston Williams. So good on him for having a good good bounce back year after that ACL, and with that. We're getting to the bootleg shot of the week, which every single week as we kind of go through these games, we nominate good, clean hits uh, that kind of demonstrate how to, you could still be physical while being legal. You know, you can still absolutely clean somebody's clock uh, without causing lifetime damage, as we say. And we always like to talk about game-changing legal hits, and we call it the bootleg shot of the week. We then 
ask you, the listener, to vote on your favorite hit of, it, hit of every single week, and then we take a shot to commemorate it on the following show. So this week, Kyle Fuller's game-changing force fumble against the Bucks was the winner by, honestly, a pretty large margin. I know we got a lot of Bears fans that listen to this podcast, but kind of hard to disagree. Huge hit, changed the game. So I'm going to grab my shot glass here. I got a Cazadora's Reposado. EJ, I think you have a tequila yourself as well. I do. I am matching your tequila. I have a Milagro, and it is the Blanco. Well, it's actually their silver, but their Blanco. Um, Extremely smooth. Uh, Chilled mine down a little bit. So you ready? I am ready. All right. Here's to Kyle Fuller. It was a rack. Salud. Oh. Well, the podcast will be warmer. <sighs> Temperature is rising, uh, iced or not. That, ooh, but uh, that'll no, wake Fuller you the fuck up. <laughs> yep, that'll that'll tickle the old taste buds going down. Good stuff. Uh, Fuller's hit was uh, really tone setting for the Bears. Before that, uh, the Bucks in that game had been moving not necessarily at will, but pretty regularly. And after that, they got almost nothing. It reminds me of the old "You'll get nothing and like it." That was Kyle Fuller's hit. Um, and he's been doing it every week. We're going to talk about it again when we get to the, the Bears Panthers games, but, uh, yep, we will have some bootleg bootleg shot of the week nominees this week as well. So we had a bunch of fun with the voting on the YouTube channel. Keep it up this week. Uh, we'll try to put out a poll on Twitter as well. So you guys have multiple chances, uh, to vote on what you think are the game changing shots of the week. So with that, we will talk about hated Bears rivals, uh, Bucks and Packers, which is uh, duly relevant because the Bears played the Bucks the week before. Uh, the NFC North is playing the NFC South this year as their divisional uh, regular opponents, if you want to call it that. Uh, and this was a pretty interesting game. What did you see in Bucks packers that caught your eye? So I spent my entire Tuesday, we're recording this on a Tuesday, uh, charting every single Packers offensive snap before they pulled Aaron Rodgers out in kind of the final half of the fourth quarter when the game was over. But uh, every play that Rodgers was on the field, I charted for the Packers, you know, down, distance, personnel grouping, formation, notes on the play, you know, coverages, all that kind of stuff. Because I wanted to see what happened. Like, not just, okay, yeah, the Packers offense had a bad day, but I wanted to see why did they have a bad day. And... As I was charting and, you know, kind of finding patterns in the notes and everything like that, I do want to say this is not Aaron Rodgers' best game, but it also was not his worst. There were a lot of miscommunications or just plain drops from his receivers. You look at an open seam ball that Mercedes Lewis, I think, didn't quite adjust well enough to because the middle field safety kind of vacated. There was a coverage bust, and you would expect Lewis to kind of adjust inside to that, and he didn't, so that was incomplete. Equinemia St. Brown had a couple drops. You know, there were protection mistakes from his running backs. Jamal Williams gave up a couple sacks, uh, and of course, the Bucks defense is just flat out really good, so I don't necessarily think this was, you know, spelling doom and gloom for Aaron Rodgers or anything like that. I don't, I don't consider the Packers to be frauds from, you know, their hot start in September like this Sometimes this just happens. You run into a buzzsaw. They have a good game plan. You're not quite as sharp as you need to be. Next thing you know, you're down by 28 points. Uh, and I do want to say hats off to Todd Bowles for his game plan in this game because it was magnificent. 
They knew that Green Bay really liked to lean on two-back sets. They do it more than anybody else. They specifically throw more passes out of two-back sets than anyone else in the league by a huge margin. Mainly, in my opinion, I think they kind of do that because their receiving core is a little bit limited. You know, Devontae Adams obviously has been kind of banged up this year, but even when Devontae's on the field, uh, you know, they have Alan Lazard and kind of nobody else. You know, Tanyan contributes here and there, but it's not exactly a super dangerous set of weapons. So I think they go into the two-back sets to kind of scheme guys open, you know, create space with the RPO game, the screen game, all that kind of stuff. It's Matt LaFleur's way of compensating for the talent that he has on the field. And so Todd Bowles knew going into this game that they run more two-back sets than everybody else. They throw out a two-back sets more than anybody else. And in weeks one through five, get this, so they had 56 dropbacks, the Green Bay offense did, out of two-back sets. 8.2 yards per attempt about 85 yards a game, four touchdowns, no picks, two sacks. Pretty good numbers. That's a huge chunk of their passing yardage per game out of two-back sets. In week six, they had 12 dropbacks, 3.1 yards per attempt, only 34 yards, no touchdowns, one interception, and a sack. They shut that off. Uh, they shut that part of their offense down and because of that, the rest of the offense kind of went with it because they build a lot of stuff off of that. And I'll give you an example, not to make this too long, but it kind of hits home here. So Nobody like cares this... if you make it too long. We heard <laughs> that loud cared. and yeah. clear from all the fans this week. We had a, occasionally mentioned that we thought the podcasts were, were getting a little bit long, and we heard, I got to say, in like shutout fashion, in resounding fashion on Every channel, YouTube, Twitter, Apple Podcast comments, nobody said, you know, you're right. You guys just talk a lot and it's way too long. Like, <laughs> nobody said that. Like, I would say 50 plus people in one form or another said, I don't have any problem with it being long. Like, make it long. That's what we're here for. So, expound. <laughs> well, with that being said, since they like long podcasts, here's an example of how the Bucks were so prepared for this two-back passing game. This is like the second or third play of the game. I think it was the second, if I recall correctly. And they went out there in their two-back look, as they do on second and 10 quite a bit. They, they use two-back on second and 10 to kind of just get cheap yards. Like I said, RPOs, screens, all that kind of stuff. They just want to get cheap yards on second and 10 to set up manageable third downs. They do it all the time. So they got Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams on the field. Jamal Williams is in the backfield. Aaron Jones was over in a bunch to the right on the weak side of the formation. So the tight end was on the other side, away from the bunch. And this is kind of a formation they like to run RPOs out of a lot, where you have outside zone, uh, an outside zone run going one way to the strong side, and then uh, that's where the tight end is lined up. And then on the back side, where the bunch is, they'll have like a, a screen, like an option uh, to throw a screen if the offense has numbers to throw the screen, meaning they have as many blockers out in front of it as they do against defenders. So if they're outnumbered against the screen, if it's like, you know, four on three, if there's like a box technique and they, they got four defensive backs over the bunch, they won't throw the screen. They'll just let it run and they'll use the numbers advantage on the run game. Uh, so as it would happen, Carlton Davis is the only defender playing the point over the screen. It's one guy against two. So they had numbers to throw that. And you could see Davis before the ball's even snapped. Like he knows like they're throwing a screen right at me. And so he splits the block as the ball is snapped. Like, he's he knows it's coming. And he uh, he beats both of them, splits it, breaks up the pass, damn near picks it off. 
And so I looked at that and I was like, okay, how did he know they were doing that? Because you can run a lot of stuff out of a bunch. It doesn't just have to be a screen. How did he know that was coming? And so I looked at every single play up until that point in the season that Green Bay had run out of their two-back stuff. And wouldn't you know, all the way back in week one, fourth quarter, I think it was like six minutes-ish left to go in the fourth quarter, they ran that exact same play against the Vikings. Two-back look, bunch to the right, uh, RPO with a backside tag for a screen, and uh, I think it got like four or five yards against Minnesota. So again, it's, it's an easy yard generator on early downs for them. And Carlton Davis knew, based on down, distance, formation, situation, and just good old-fashioned instincts, this RPO is coming. They're throwing a screen my way. It's two-on-one. If I don't make this tackle, this thing is going to go for a big-ass gain. And he just came hard upfield uh, and, and broke it up. And that, to me, is both a testament to Carlton Davis for studying, but it's a testament to Todd Bowles for getting his guys ready, getting them to understand tendencies and situational football, um, and just kind of being able to play with their brains as much as they do with their feet and hands. And so hats off to Todd Bowles for knowing what Green Bay leans on, which is their two-back offense, and then shutting that down, which then caused a ripple effect throughout the rest of the offense where they just couldn't get anything done. Yeah, I feel like Bowles kind of, if we're using baseball analogies, threw like a two-hit shutout. It wasn't yeah. that the Packers got nothing. It wasn't a no hitter, um, you know, or maybe it was a two hit, like one run game. Like he really threw a ton of looks. He disguised well. He varied his looks. He adjusted well at halftime. All the things you need to do to play well against a guy like Aaron Rodgers that look, he's seen it all it's very hard to quote unquote confuse him. It's, it's not impossible to frustrate him, but it's very hard to sort of pull one over on him. You're not going to, for the most part, get him to throw bad balls with regularity. And Bulls had the answer. Not only, like you said, does he have talented defenders at every level? He absolutely does. The defensive line has got a bunch of murderers on yeah. it. He's yeah. got two great inside linebackers. The secondary we've talked about quite a bit. You just talked about Davis. Um, Jamel Dean's been playing out of his mind. He had a pick six like uh, this week. So, again, that's those are players that are playing at a very high level. But you're right, getting them prepped, getting them ready, and then calling that game right it's like a catcher calling a really good game for his pitcher even if the pitcher is tremendous you still got to set him up and put him in the right situations and Bulls did that masterfully and the Bucks walked out with a victory and it wasn't all that close like they had that almost from bell to bell and a lot of that falls on Todd Bulls. Yeah, once, you know, they were down 10 nothing to start, but once they got the interceptions, I mean, that was it. <laughs> the game... Once there was the, the three-pump celebration, if you're listening to any kind of sports <laughs> media, that was the end of it. That was yeah. the summoning of the devil, and, and they fell apart after that because that's what did it, not not Todd Bowles and his talented de- – anyways, that's garbage, but, you know. The devil was Rob Gronkowski, by the way, who had a yeah. vintage – vintage performance he looked like the old Gronk for a day so uh, I think uh, I think those pelvic thrusts might have uh, 
set Gronk off. <laughs> five catches, <laughs> 78 yards, touchdown. All right, quick you piece know. of advice. If you have Gronk in fantasy, sell, sell, sell right now. Sell. Yes, sell right Call now. whoever you can and sell because it's probably not happening again, but it did indeed happen. Uh, and, you know, good on him, good to see it, but uh, not likely to happen again is what we're saying. So I thought he was damn near going to break a hip every time he took a hit out there. <laughs> not gonna lie. I was also a little bit worried. <laughs> yeah i it's funny i i guessed it on a fantasy football podcast this week and and we ended up talking about the gronkowski game and and what that should mean and what what owners should do with that but um gronkowski really sort of he goes into the situation yes obviously a strong relationship with tom brady but in terms of the tight end situation the only worst place he could have gone pretty much in the league is Cleveland in terms of talent, right? They've got at the beginning of the year, they got OJ Howard, they got Cameron Brait, like easily a couple of starters. You know, Gronkowski is the third, maybe the fourth tight end at the start of camp. Like he's not a guy that's looking for a ton of targets or production. Uh, you know, he's looking at support and, and selling a system and getting everybody used to how Tom Brady likes things. But here he is, O.J. Howard out for the year, Cameron Brait not exactly setting the world on fire, and Gronkowski does the Gronkowski thing. And it, uh, you know, it was nostalgic, but uh, if you expect it to last, it might not happen. Yeah, he'll still block his ass off, but uh, receiving days like this one might be few and far between. Unless uh, unless he's got some deer antler spray and we don't know about it, but... <laughs> We'll see. We'll see. The, the cream or the clear, which one? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, we should talk Texans-Titans because this was a oh, heck of a God. game. It involved your team, uh, but it was a heck of a game. Went to overtime, um, you know, which is maybe more than you could have hoped for at the outset. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but as, as soon as they the, won the coin toss, we knew it was going to happen, though. Uh, well... You know, maybe, but the NFL <laughs> even weird Deshaun place. knew. If you saw Deshaun's yeah. reaction when they lost the coin toss, he just went like, "Oh God, Jesus Christ, why now?" He knew it was coming. Yeah, but we need to lead with Derrick Henry because O M F G. Uh, Derrick Henry, look, a really talented guy. We've talked about him at length. We talked about him when he signed his contract. We talked about what we thought about that. All that. Derrick Henry just ruled this game. 212 yards. 169 of those yards came on only five carries out of 22. That's staggering production. And this team is built around two things. And one is his ability to run it behind that offensive line. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Look, Derrick Henry is a guy that if he keeps stringing these type of games together, 200 plus yard games, and he does this for, I don't know, four, maybe five more years, we're talking about Hall of Fame type numbers that are going to be hard to ignore. And it's not that I'm saying, look, Derrick Henry is a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't necessarily believe that, but he continues to rack up these just eye-opening performances right it's not an error that a guy that's 240 plus pounds who runs low fours and can outrun clearly can outrun defensive backs we saw that in in pretty much the sort of starkest contrast this week 
he had straight up one-on-one with defensive backs and just ran away from them on a 94-yard run. Um, Derrick Henry was, I'm not going to say the difference in this game, but he was the major factor driving Tennessee forward. And see, what's what's crazy about him is he's had so much mileage, not just like in, in the pros, but in college too. Mm-hmm. And he's still, like when he's in the open field, he's still the fastest guy on the field. You look at Zeke Elliott, who Zeke's, I'm not saying Zeke is slow, but he's clearly not as quick as he was early in his career, like, you know, 2016, 2017, when he was just, you know, setting the world on fire. I do think Zeke has been worn down a little bit as his workload. He's already got like almost 1,300 carries, I think it is. Uh, And and Derrick Henry's pushing 1,000 himself. Um, But Zeke already, I think, has has been affected by his workload, where Derrick Henry, when you include his college workload, has had more carries than Zeke, I believe. And he looks just as fast as when he was 19 years old. Like, he has not lost a single step. And that is just wild to me. He's a freak. It, he is absolutely a physical freak. There's there's no doubt about it. We were talking about it uh, prior to starting this podcast that he's just an odd physical individual. He obviously is very large. He's tall for a running back. He's heavy for a running back. He's extremely high cut, meaning his hips are quite high. His legs are long. One of the reasons he doesn't look like he's running that fast is his legs are longer than most running backs, and he doesn't have that super high, short, choppy cadence. But he is striding and clearly running away from guys that should be much faster than him in the defensive backfield, mm-hmm. and and he does it with regularity. Robert Mays brought up a really good point from The Athletic this week saying, Raheem Mostert is jarring because running backs typically aren't really that fast. There are a few that are really fast, and it just looks different when you see them. And Raheem Mostert is a jet when he gets that crease in San Francisco's run game, typically on those sort of outside zones, takes a cut, and whoa, he just accelerated past two or three guys. It, It looks... You know, that's what Robert was saying is that it looks different. Henry looks different in the fact that here's this massive guy with these long legs that doesn't look like he's striding that fast. But yet you look back and on that 94 yard run, he was somewhat even with the defensive backs. And then he just literally ran away from them. Like they just dropped back about five yards in about the next 15 yards. And it was clear that, oh, that's the fastest guy right there. That huge guy. That's the fastest guy. And that's just staggering. So Derrick Henry is, I don't want to say he's one of a kind, but he's damn near close in the NFL right now. You've got guys like A.J. Dillon who are who are very large and quite fast, but not that many guys with that physical proportion still have that, like, oh my God speed. And Henry showed it multiple times during this game. Yeah. Um, The Texans' pass rush, which was once vaunted, um, that's my language, is struggling, especially in the red zone. Emphasis on the word once. Yeah, I, you know, look, they had, for a while, they had Whitney Merciless, Davian Clowney, J.J. Watt. Like, this was a unit that had some 
firepower that you really did have to worry about on pretty much every play. Doesn't feel like that anymore, and especially early in the game, in the red zone, they were not getting a ton of pressure. Um, Tannehill was having enough time, plenty of time, to do the things he wanted to do. But right as soon as I wrote that in my notes, good old J.J. Watt. Uh, maybe has his Gronkowski moment, makes a game-turning play, which happens to be a bootleg football shot of the week candidate. The sack four fumble combo was huge, gave the Texans mm-hmm. a short field, and it was vintage JJ. This was a blast. Yeah, coming around the blind side, you know, not just wrapping up the quarterback, but giving that nice karate chop as you're coming around the end. Uh this was a very good game for J.J. Watt. Honestly, he's been having a, a good season, in my opinion. He's just kind of the only guy there. So he's he's getting that old, you know, 2012, 2013, everybody block J.J. and we'll handle everybody else kind of treatment. Uh, back when Whitney Merciless was still young before he kind of became, uh, well, Whitney, he had a, a decent spike in kind of the mid the mid-2010s, and then he kind of fell off again. But uh, back in the early J.J. Watt days where it was him and Antonio Smith, and they were willing to leave Antonio Smith one-on-one all day in order to double and triple J.J., and, and that's what's happening again now, except we don't even have Antonio Smith. We have nobody. So it's <laughs> it's been rough, but this was a this was a vintage, you know, give J.J. Watt a one-on-one and he'll go win it uh, type hit, and yeah, he he changed the game right then and there, and I, I only wish that uh, Houston could have won the coin toss because I genuinely believe Deshaun would have won that game if they did. And, and people give Romeo Cornell crap for not kicking the extra point and trying to just win it with the two-point conversion, but again, when you look at the percentage chance, like if you can put the ball in Deshaun Watson's hands and he's got a you know maybe 50-50 shot of just winning the game for you, you trust Deshaun Watson. Like, that, to me, is not a bad decision. Did it work out? No. Would I do it again? Absolutely. So I, I understand why he did it. You want your defense to just get one stop. Of course they couldn't because they suck. Uh, and then, you know, you lose the coin toss, and then, of course, the defense can't get another stop, and they, and they lose. But uh, putting the ball in Deshaun Watson's hands to try to prevent your defense from having to do anything, to me, is a good call. So I, I do not agree with the people that are hating on Romeo Cornell. He did the right thing. Yeah, I I think, again, given that chance, either one of us would take it uh, more often than not. You know, the chances that Deshaun Watson is going to win that six out of ten times, pretty darn good. Uh, This was one of the four times that, you know, he rolled snake eyes and nothing came up right, which, again, is almost a little jarring in its own right because he's such a magician. We talked about this last week, but what he does late and near the sidelines and with no room and with no time and with no angle routinely gets you kind of almost callous to the fact that when he has a somewhat kind of normal play like going for the win and he doesn't get it you're almost like wait what like he always gets it so <laughs> yeah. uh i would i would take that chance just like you would um couple things to mention on the tana on the Tannehill side there's a freudian slip for you for the titan side the thing that makes the titans unfair right now is even with that very physical mashing offensive line that is sort of molded in the spitting image of Mike Vrabel as a player and wait EJ Mike Vrabel wasn't an offensive lineman no but he definitely had the mentality of grinding people down he was a very physical player and the team has really made in him his, his image to maximize Derrick Henry's talent what you have on the flip side of that coin is Ryan Tannehill is looking so sharp right now 
playing at the top of his game, incredibly comfortable in the system, has command, knows where he's going with the ball. And when you have sort of a double-edged sword like that, like, hey, we got to sell out to stop Derrick Henry in this run game, and then Tannehill's being really sharp and efficient and hitting the receivers, uh, including Anthony Ferksker? Like, who the hell is Anthony Ferksker? Sorry. Um, (laughs) With my background in the draft and scouting, when I see a player in the NFL that I have never, ever heard of, I get interested. And here comes Anthony Ferksker. He's a third-year player. He went to Harvard, you smart guy. Uh, So he's one of those (laughs) Ivy League tight ends. And he has a massive game. He breaks out for over 100 yards like Johnu Smith is not doing so well. And, you know, he's injured. And here comes Anthony Ferksker. And Tannehill's like, well, he's open. I'll hit him. And when you've got that on the flip side of that offensive line and Derrick Henry, like, ah, I, it's just a tough out. It's it's really difficult to beat a team that's playing that well on both the run and the pass. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the same team that came out and whooped Buffalo while barely even practicing for two weeks, and then they come out and they you know back to back. What is it? Back to back thirty five plus point games, maybe even mm-hmm. forty point games for them. Like it, the defense. They they had a rough one with Deshaun because Deshaun's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. But this is still a, a good defense in my opinion. Uh, Jeffrey Simmons is kind of you know getting back into it after missing uh, last week from the COVID designation. But like it, come December, this defense is going to be fine in my opinion. Uh, and and not to mention the offense is firing on all cylinders. Like this is this is not just a oh they'll win the AFC South. This is not just a, okay, yeah, maybe they'll get to the wild card round and then, you know, get bounced by Baltimore or something like that. Like, this is a, uh, you better keep track of them for the Super Bowl and not just the AFC. Because this is a legitimately dominant team on both sides of the ball. They already proved last year that they can kick the bully in the teeth in Baltimore. Went to the AFC Championship game, and I think they're even better this year. Like, I think they can beat Kansas City. Obviously, I think they can beat Baltimore. Uh, I, I don't really know of any other teams in the AFC that would even threaten them at this point. Like, I, I think it's a... Oh, Pittsburgh, I, I guess, is up there too. God, actually, Pittsburgh and Titans, when is that game? Is that this week? I don't know, oh, but it's going to be oh. must-see TV because both of those teams are playing at the top of their games. And I honestly... Just when you said that, and I hadn't made this comparison before, Tannehill looks a little bit like Big Ben to me, except way more mobile, (laughs) right? I'm not talking about mobility, but that ability to sit back and pick apart a defense really at every level, because he's throwing the deep ball well as well, but he's not afraid to take the underneath receiver, obviously the tight ends. He can go deep to AJ Brown, like he's got weapons and it. He just looks like Ben when Ben was in that middle stretch of being incredibly comfortable in the Pittsburgh offense. He'd been in the same offense with the same coach, the same offensive line coach, right? He just knew where everything was, and every week it looked like he was just flipping it to the open guy all the time. And you add to that, Tannehill is a converted wide receiver in college. He can really run. Big Ben never had that ability to really sprint 
again, it's one more element to this team that's super well balanced, extremely physical, both on offense and defense. And like you said, I think they're going to stress every team they play right up to the end, and the end might be the Super Bowl. I just checked, and so the Steelers and the Titans are the only unbeaten teams left in the conference. They play this week. That is going to be sick. Oh, I wish we could travel. I wish we could travel. That is going to be so sick. I can't wait. That is going to be because again, a the, t- the Titans are the Titans are again not just AFC South, not just wild card, not just division. Like this is a legitimate Super Bowl contending team, and Pittsburgh is one of three other teams in the whole conference that I think can actually beat them. So this this game's going to be crazy. Yeah, I I can't wait to to do some. To do some digging on that one, because it's going to be really good. But let's go to a completely different flavor of game. Uh, Rams-Niners. Now, this is an NFC West showdown. Uh, Two high-powered offenses uh, that do it in very different ways. But it's funny, their coaches know each other and, and revealed this week that they don't often talk because they're afraid that they will share too much with the other coach because all they can do is talk about football, (laughs) which doesn't surprise me at all between McVay and Shanahan. These are two guys that are extremely immersed in their professional cultures. Uh, But I just find that funny that two, you know, again, very successful, very young head coaches, both known for their offensive bent and innovation uh, playing in the same conference on the same coast, don't talk to each other because they're afraid they might let something slip that the other coach will take to the bank. So a fascinating setup, but I want to start with Debo Samuel as a runner because he is back to being healthy enough to run and they are running him. And he is a weapon. We started to see that last year as a real dual threat, and and these guys are propping up around cropping up around the league. We saw Curtis Samuel before his knee injury had an equal number, almost equal number of carries and receptions, and was really starting to be used by that new New Carolina staff in a sort of much more effective and balanced role. Um, you know, Brandon Ayuk, who's another rookie for the 49ers, we knew is one of those guys just get the ball in his hands down in Jacksonville. They've got LaVisca Chenault, who we look at as a receiver and say, hey, he may be limited as a down the field receiver. But again, get the ball in his hands any way you can. Let him run it. He's powerful. He's explosive. And offensive coordinators, I don't know, it just seems like around the league, they're much more willing to put the ball into the hands of a wide receiver on a run this year than any time I can remember in the recent past. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I think it's it's one more way, and we always like to talk about how like you know the college game um, kind of influences the pro game, and and for a long time we saw the college game kind of emphasize attacking space, um, outflanking defenses, all that kind of stuff, like not just working in between the numbers, but working outside the numbers too especially with the quick game. And I think a lot of these wide receiver runs and the tap pass sweeps and, and all that kind of stuff, the motion at the snap, that to me is one more way for offenses to attack space laterally uh, without it just being bubble screens and, and that kind of stuff. Like this is a way to get a fast guy in space moving at the snap. So he's already at full speed as the play is starting so he can outflank a defense, just get that extra little juice he needs to get the edge um, while also using the threat of that as 
misdirection so that you can attack in between the numbers. You can try to, you know, pull these linebackers apart, kind of create seams in the run game or, um, you know, influence zone defenders to move out of the way, you know, throw a slant behind it if you're trying to get a guy to, to move out of the middle of the field. So it, it's not just a way to attack space, but it's a way to create space for uh, more traditional modes of attack, I guess you could say. The inside zone run game, duo, um, you know, the quick game over the middle, all that kind of stuff that, you know, West Coast offenses are known for. This is just a way to, to make it work more efficiently. And uh, it's not just West Coast teams that are doing it. You know, it's Andy Reid, who I like to say is running the spread coast out there because he's kind of hybridized what he does with, um, you know, the spread passing game and, you know, things that uh, Pat Mahomes likes, which if, if it was Pat Mahomes' idea, he would just run four verts every play because he loves that. But, uh, you know, they do it with Tyreek. And um, the, the big thing I'm seeing is like running fake counters where you've got like a lead blocker pulling and then they stop in the middle of the play and turn around and go the other way. Um, we've seen the, the, the Niners do it. We've seen the Rams do it. We've seen the Steelers do it. Like everybody's kind of running that fake counter after Kyle Shanahan ran it against the Giants. Uh, so it, it's it's been fascinating to watch this copycat league use receivers in new ways, uh, attack space in new ways, and just really lean hard into motion and misdirection. Yeah, there's so much of it, and you see more and more of it, and you see the same things sort of propagating week after week. One of the things is that tap pass that you mentioned. Um, we saw two teams score on it this week. Uh, we've seen multiple teams score on it in previous weeks. Uh, so much motion at the snap to again influence people and if you've seen anything early in the season you've seen that if you generally have almost any linebacker in the league short of maybe Isaiah Simmons trying to cover those folks forget it you get a fast player with motion and a head of steam at the snap and you have a linebacker who is set trying to a run laterally with that guy to the edge or oh wait they handed it off to the back he's coming through the middle like you just put those players under such tremendous stress in terms of decision making at the snap if you can get them to stall for that half second you've already won and offenses are doing everything in their power to throw multiple reads at those guys and go make a choice in a in a literally a split second and it's working. We're seeing offenses being tremendously creative and prolific. And if you want to call it copycat, yeah, absolutely. It's a copycat league. We're seeing more and more of it every week. And, you know, it's always that point counterpoint, right? If the offense is doing that, defenses have to figure out a way to counter that. It's the same thing when the RPO came in and slow playing those reads. Like there's always that great balance, uh, cat and mouse between offense and defense. And the defense is a little bit behind on all the sort of pre-snap motion and motion at the snap specifically. So it'll be really interesting to see how they catch up. But in a more traditional way, if you're talking about the Rams, Darrell Henderson, man, this guy, I loved him. I swore to God that the Bears were targeting him because they wanted more explosive plays. Turns out they wanted more of a Kareem Hunt type clone. They ended up picking up David Montgomery, trading up to do it. Um, Darrell Henderson is a, a super flashy juice. player. He's so getting yeah, so much juice. And it's the fact, the thing about Henderson that makes him extremely special is all he needs is a crack. 
and if he gets mm-hmm. the crack, he blows through it at such a speed that it's not just that he's to the second level. He's really putting pressure on the third level to be in the right position or the right fit or at least uh, somewhere near him because if they're not close, they're not getting him. He's already at like level one and a half when he busts through the line. And if you're not close, you're not going to lay a hand on him. His speed puts so much pressure on the second and third levels of the defense that you you can't be cheating out to the boundary on that tight end that's going on the cut. And you can bet that McVeigh is scheming up Tyler Higby to run you over there, right? And if you follow him, you're not catching Darrell Henderson as he blasts through in the middle. So it's really fun to see a, a fully healthy running back for the Rams. They've been sort of nursing along with Todd Gurley and trying to monitor his snap count. And, and he could be explosive when he was fresh, but not like Henderson, who has an extremely low number of rushes overall, if we're talking about college and the pros, and is running at full speed right now. And it's so much fun to watch. Yeah. And I mean, having Cam Akers is your number two. I mean, there's a lot of teams <laughs> that would kill for that. Yeah, it's an embarrassment of riches. There's a lot of teams right now that have, we always talk about running back duos, and especially if you play fantasy, you're talking about splitting carries and backfield by committee. This year, there's a number of teams that go legitimately not too deep, but three deep. So not running back duos, but running back trios. The Browns are one that come to mind. Uh, The Colts are in the same category. They have three guys that they could go with. Um, Even after Marlon Mack got hurt, which is ridiculous, which means they had a quad before that. Um, And having guys like Cam Akers and Darrell Henderson that you can bring in in waves and keep fresh, uh, talk about putting pressure on a defense. I think offenses have fully committed to the idea of not necessarily having a bell cow, but having a couple of bell cows and running them in rapid succession and doing what they do best. And, you know, they have Malcolm Brown as the number three. You know who their number four running back is, in my opinion? Uh-uh. Robert Woods. Uh-uh. The next guy we're going to talk about, Robert Woods again, right? We said it a few weeks ago that Robert Woods is just a great football player. He makes great football plays every week. And whether that's running it on a jet sweep, making a tough little cut in the end zone, hanging on through a hit, Robert Woods is somewhat underrated. We started talking about him right after the Bills game, which we called kind of the Robert Woods revenge game, because obviously that's where he started his professional career. If you were smart, you were listening to that. He did it again this week, ended up coming up with coming up with a big touchdown for the Rams. Robert Woods is just a really, really solid football player. And I don't know whether it's his name is plain or maybe people didn't like him coming out of college. I don't know what it is, but Robert Woods just does not get any play in that sort of top 10 to 15 wide receiver category in the NFL. And if you look at the way he produces in Sean McVay's offense, um, that's a little bit surprising. You know, I if we're just talking about pure receivers, I don't know if I'd put him top 10 to 15, but if we're just talking like football players who happen to be designated as wide receivers that block and run and he'll play special teams if you want him to like yeah he's he's a football player like he's hard to overlook as well yeah this comes down to like the the scores versus shooters analogy that dj and bucky make on path to the draft which is tremendous podcast if you're not listening to that you probably should be but they really talked about that 
you know, guys in basketball that can score cleanly, that guy that can shoot the three-pointer all the time, that's a shooter, right? And we love classic shooters. And you're talking about that pure wide receiver, right? That's the classic shooter, as opposed to scorer, which is you get the ball in their hands and they do good things with it. And that's Robert Woods in a nutshell. So Woods is just that guy that you, you got to have. And and his running mate, Cooper Cup, is tremendously consistent. We actually called him out on the program, I think, last week and said, man, here's a guy that just so, yeah. keeps making plays. And Cooper Cup threw up a zero this week. He had a rough week. He was well open downfield. Jared Goff threw him a great ball, and he just pulled up like three yards short. It looked like he lost it in the lights. I'm not exactly sure, but yeah. he was he had a stride and he just kinda shut it down and the ball landed, you know, two or three yards past him. Looked like he could have had it, and then he missed a contested catch in the end zone that would have been a touchdown. That is very non Cooper Cup like. He is absolutely the guy that typically makes that play. Um had nine targets this week and ended up with three catches for eleven yards, no touchdowns. So that's a that is a very un-Cooper Cup-like week. I am not portending doom for Mr. Cup. I think he'll rebound just fine. But he had a rough showing for a guy that's tremendously consistent, uh, it, almost jarring to kind of look at it and go, what, three for, three, three for 11 on nine targets? That is that is very non-Cooper Cup-like. I, I will give the 49ers defense some credit for that. Uh, actually, I'll give him a lot of credit for it because at the end of the day, like you know, we're talking about how much we love Woods and how much we love Cup and how much we love Henderson. The Rams only put up 16 points, and part of the reason for that, or rather, a big reason for that, is the Niners' secondary is finally a little bit healthier. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, Jason Verrett's playing like an old pro. Uh, they got Emmanuel Mosley back, and what a difference that made! Like the the Niners' corners as a group only gave up 71 yards passing in this game. Jared Goff had less than 200. So while we love the talent of Henderson, while we love Woods as a football player, while we love Cup and it seemed like he had an off night, overall this was not a very productive offense because the Niners' defense played very well, especially in the secondary. Um, And I think, I don't know if we're going to see this every week from the Niners because they just had so many injuries but they still have a lot of talent. Like they still have Fred Warner, one of the best linebackers in the league, probably top three to four, I would say right now, linebackers in the league. Um, they don't even have Richard Sherman back yet. I can't remember when he's supposed to come back, but uh, Verrett, Mosley, and Sherman, I think is an elite trio of corners. Uh, they have some talent at safety. Jimmy, when he's healthy, I think is a good quarterback. Not a great one, but at least a good one. Uh, and Kittle, obviously, is arguably the best tight end in the game. So there's still a lot of elite players and elite units on this team. They can still do a lot of damage. And I consider the Rams to be an excellent football team with a lot of talent, as we've talked about a lot so far. And they kick their ass. So uh, good ups, or you know, big ups to the Niners for having a bounce back week probably because Brian Allen wasn't on the field. That probably helped a lot. But also, it's it's a good reminder for the people at home. The Niners are a damn good football team, and they're not going anywhere, even though they're 3-3. Three and three. Like, they are not going anywhere. No, nah, I wouldn't bet against them. They're tremendously well coached, and like you said, they find ways to manufacture plays, whether it's on offense or defense, in different ways, different personnel, different matchups. They are elite at that as a team. And one of the ways that you know that is like 
the running back position way back before the draft we said oh there's these guys that would be good fits for san francisco because they run a very particular run game they're looking for uh this takes me back to like you know liam neeson and taken right i have a very particular set of (laughs) skills right they're looking for a very particular set of you know characteristics in their running backs and jermichael hasty was one of the guys we said man if he ended up with shanahan he would just kill ends up being a udfa going to san francisco gets in the game this week and looks exactly the part right he's that one cut slashing back that fits damn near perfectly in a shanahan run system would have worked very well in arizona as well under cliff kingsbury uh and, you know, the Niners are like, no problem. We lose Matt Breida, fine. We'll get two undrafted free agents and replace you, you know, for no money. And, again, they are just going to reload week after week at different positions. Um, if it's not Debo Samuel, it's going to be Brandon Ayuk. If it's not Kittle, they're going to find something else. Not as good as Kittle, but because nothing's as good as Kittle at tight end in the league right now. But Shanahan's not going to give up, and this team's not going to go away. Yeah, and weirdly enough, to Michael Hasty, despite all the the running backs we really love, he's the only one that averaged more than four yards per carry against this Rams front, which is a obviously with Aaron Donald's very good uh, front seven. Hasty's the only one that even had a respectable-ish kind of game. Like Mostert was mostly bottled up. Uh, I don't even think. Let's see. Yeah, his long was fifteen, but other than that, he pretty much shut down for the night he finished with like 3.8 per carry 15 that one 15 yard run was kind of all he really had um to speak of for the night but but hasty he grinded it out I, I think he's uh, i don't know if he'll end up getting more looks over mckinnon as we go forward but just from what we saw at baylor and just how we know he fits the system if if you're a fantasy player and he's available on waivers and you have room to spare to stash I would probably do that because I don't think we've seen the last of Jermichael Hasty. No, not at all. He's his talents fit that system very, very well, and he's just going to again grow into sort of understanding how that line works and how the offense works. The line's going to do the same for him. Every running back's a little bit different. They all have their own sort of ways that they like things blocked and the things that they are able to take advantage of more than other running backs. And San Francisco is just starting to figure that out uh, with Michael Hasty. So, yeah, a great guy to sort of grab if you've got space because his production will come in bunches. He's not going to win the league every week, but he is going to have that pop-off game, mark our words, uh, where he cracks 100 and maybe comes up with two scores because he's got a lot of gas when he gets in the open field. He is fast in a straight line. 100%. And with that, uh, I think it's time to move on to the Week 6 Blitz. Uh, (laughs) I heard an alternate name for the Blitz this week from one of our listeners that made me laugh out loud. (laughs) You want to hear it? The Week 6 separate podcast entirely because it's so fucking long. (laughs) Uh, Close. He used a historical reference from World War II. He called it the uh, Week 6 Baton Death March. Uh, He did do it tongue-in-cheek. But yes, we realize the Blitz has taken a long time, so we're going to cut it down a little bit this week. But you guys have also said that you appreciate long podcasts, so uh, we we won't spare the horses in this one. So I'm going to start it off with Bears-Panthers. Bears D started off hot, just missing a safety, and then getting a deflection by Jalen Johnson, the rookie that created a pick, uh, ended up Gibson got the pick. Uh, that really sort of set the tone early on for the Bears. 
Jalen Johnson also had another big play, forcing a fumble. Good shot on Mike Davis. Uh, hit the ball almost cleanly and dislodged it, so doesn't end up as a bootleg shot of the week, but could. Um, and Jalen Johnson, again, playing at an extremely high level for a rookie corner. Um, Robbie Anderson, a guy we've talked about several times as, uh, you know, those 80s football posters, Brett? The really over-the-top uh, ones? The the super campy ones? Yeah, yeah, the super campy yeah, yeah, ones. Yeah. I want one super bad of Robbie Anderson dressed like, wait for it, Snake Plissken. Who? I'm showing my age here, I know, but... Escape who? from New York. <laughs> oh, okay. It's perfect. <laughs> Why? What? Robbie Anderson Why him? leaves Adam Gase and has oh, a career season. It. Come on. Robbie Anderson oh, I feel, Snake I feel stupid. You it's get, okay. Uh, you can it. feel stupid. I want that poster on my wall. And yes, See, I'm here's 12. the thing. We can do that for Tannehill. We can do that for Anderson. We can I know, do that there's for so probably many. Le'Veon Bell. <laughs> there's so many. But Robbie Anderson actually did come from New York. So anyways, I want the poster. But Robbie Anderson, another couple of huge catches, including a diving beauty down the sidelines. If you were a fan of receiver play, you've probably already seen that one. But Robbie continues to deliver in Carolina. And... Kyle Fuller, we would be remiss. Our our inaugural uh, bootleg shot of the week winner had another massive shot that was wrongly flagged. Go back and look. No contact with the helmet. Led with the shoulder. Kyle Fuller has figured out how to absolutely physically dominate and rip guys under the rules legally. And the officials have not figured out how to handle it. They see this <laughs> massive shot and they go, oh, geez, that, that's got to be illegal. And they throw the flag because they're not used to seeing that level of physicality from a cornerback or that level of contact. And Kyle Fuller is playing well within the rules, but people are literally not throwing to his side because he is lighting guys up. He is really physically hurting people within the rules. And the NFL is just really quite not sure how to handle that. So um, we're, we're kind of debating whether or not Fuller's shot, although it got flagged in the Panthers game, is eligible. Uh, so look for that in the poll. It might pop up. But uh, Kyle Fuller playing at really an all-pro level at cornerback right now. I'll just say this. A lot of people talk about corners making business decisions when it comes to tackling. Uh, Kyle Fuller's business is destroying rib cages because that seems to be what he does at least once a week. He knows where he can aim. He knows that's the yeah. safe spot. And it was funny because he got flagged in that game and he actually had another big shot on a ball carrier later and they ducked their head really severely, like jackknifed their back over and pulled their head below their hips. And he got underneath them and hit them in the knees and was like, nope. You can go low, but I can go lower. I'm we're not gonna, getting fined. We're gonna we're gonna play limbo all day long. And he ended up like 14 inches off the ground, shoving his shoulder pads into this guy's kneecaps because he ducked his head and Fuller didn't want to hit his head. But that's another story. Quick question for you before I move on to mine, uh, just because I love Kyle Fuller. He's one of my favorite Bears. Ring of Honor, yes or no? If he keeps playing like this, absolutely not even close. Yes. How many more years? Uh, maybe just a couple because he has been playing, he really hit his stride. There was a 
there was a big let's call it variance with Kyle Fuller. There was an odd year where he had an injury and uh, Vic Fangio called him out and said, you know, if he really wants to play, he can come back, which was a very odd thing for a defensive coordinator to say about a star defender. Um, Kyle Fuller ended up sitting out. We were just very unsure about Kyle Fuller's standing with the bears at all. Came back the next year and had really his first sort of renaissance year because he did good years early in his career and then there was this sort of mid-rookie contract waffle <laughs> and this yeah there's like there's a couple of weird years like 2015 yeah. 2016 yeah. yeah and then he had this sort of uh public ish falling out with Vic Fangio and we all went oh what the hell's going on here like or, or is he falling off like he comes back the next year and locks it down and plays tremendous ball like top 10 corners in the league ball and he really hasn't dropped off since and now he's gotten back to that form that he had in college at virginia tech when he was extremely physical he was one of the guys that when i scouted him one of the things i loved the most was his ability to absolutely sniff and sub out and destroy screens like going through the blockers not around them not splitting the blockers but blowing up the blocker and then blowing up the screen he also played punt coverage uh and punt return teams because his brother was the punt returner and one of my favorite all-time kyle fuller highlights is him being a blocker on the punt return team for his brother and laying a guy out on the sidelines to free up his brother for a return i mean like completely horizontal like torpedoing him out of bounds <laughs> um and you're like that's their star corner he's doing that on specialties on returns like kyle fuller is an amazingly physical player and i am glad that he is maximizing that because it literally does it sets fear into people and they won't admit it because it's the nfl and macho culture still rules the nfl nobody's going to say i'm afraid to go to that side but right now you don't think guys are alligator arming it a little bit because kyle fuller's coming for their ribs they absolutely are they're listening for the footsteps guarantee it anytime they they read zone and they know he's waiting there in the flat, and they're running a shallow cross. They're just thinking, please, for the love of God, don't throw it to me. Please don't throw it to me. I'm going to get murdered. Please don't throw it to me. <laughs> for those of you that don't know Kyle Fuller's game, Kyle Fuller's game is off-man, uh, also good in zone, but off-man, and he lurks. He and Eddie Jackson are the same in this. It, their ideal position for any play is about six yards off wherever the man they're stalking is. And I say stalking with purpose, right? Because they are waiting for the ball to come to that player so that they can break downhill and explode that guy. And that is their preferred method is playing forward or coming forward downhill, whatever you want to call it on defense. They will shadow about five to six yards off that guy and play downhill hard to the ball. Um, we've seen Eddie Jack. We saw him do it in this game. He had a pick called back for a sort of, I don't want to say phantom DPI again call, for like the yeah. third time this year. He posted on Twitter that, Hey man, that's eight TDs in, in four years. Unfortunately, only five of them count, but, um, Eddie Jackson's had two in the last three weeks that should have been touchdowns, uh, on returns, but Eddie Jackson, Kyle Fuller are the same in that way that they shadow folks about five to six yards deep and break downhill back towards the quarterback and hit the guy going through, and they're both very, very good at it. Yeah. God, I love watching this Bears defense. I just love it. But uh, with that being said, I'm going to move on to 
you know, again, in, in true blitz flat fashion, taking 20 <laughs> minutes per team. Uh, I'm going to move on to five. You uh, asked Falcons, the extra Vikings. question. It's on you. I, man. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> it's a great question. I just, I, I love talking about Kyle Fuller. But anyway, uh, Falcons, Vikings. Kirk Cousins, uh, he, he, he pulled a Kirk Cousins. He had, a, he had a really rough game through some horrendous interceptions. Uh, and, and when you're, when you got the Falcons with Julio back healthy, and you're giving them free possessions. I know it's Atlanta, but this this team still has a ton of firepower on offense. They still have a former MVP at quarterback who I think, not even like an outside shot at the Hall of Fame, I'm pretty sure Matt Ryan's going to end up in the Hall of Fame. I don't know if it'll be first ballot, but I'm pretty sure he's going to end up in the Hall of Fame because if Eli's there, Matt Ryan should be there in my opinion. Uh, he's just a better quarterback than Eli ever was. But Matt Ryan's still a great quarterback, still a ton of weapons. And if you're just giving them free possessions... Yeah, you're going to get boat raced. And whether or not they had Delvin Cook, I don't think this game was winnable as long as Kirk was throwing picks like that. So it's it was a rough game to watch. Pretty much. They threw three in the first half. I mean, yeah, it when was you ugly. throw three straight up in the first half, and yeah, I know his arm got hit on the third one. I get it. But literally, he threw one before they were done announcing the lineups. Like, and, and Atlanta, like you said, boat raced him, turned that around threw a quick one to Julio. Ryan throws a dart. They're up seven, nothing like that just sets a team on a certain course for a day. And the fact that you back it up with two more interceptions in the first half after that first really ugly one, you don't write the ship. You just kind of double and then triple down, you know, look as an NFC North fan love to see it, but as if I was a Vikings fan, I would be hating this. And the worst part is I know when I go to sleep at night and I close my eyes and I can't get away from it, Minnesota can't get out from under the Cousins contract. They they fiscally cannot do it. It is like the $84 million anchor around their neck. They have to live with this. So when these games come up, they just have to plug their nose and turn their head and hope it gets better next week. I think this is part of the reason why they traded Diggs and swapped him out for Jefferson because they knew it's like we got to find money somewhere because we we can't we can't get rid of Kirk. We just can't do it. Uh, and lucky for them, that swap seems to have worked out because Justin Jefferson, my God, I, this is all time special rookie season. Like this is Odell twenty fourteen caliber rookie season so far he came into the year keep in mind as the number three behind Thielen and BC Johnson you and I talked on this podcast multiple times saying that's not gonna that's not gonna last forever uh like we said well six weeks into the season he's he's gonna start stealing snaps and and nope it took about two weeks and now he is six weeks into this thing fifth in the league in receiving I think he is officially the number one receiver for the Vikings. As much as we love Thielen, he's leading the league among receivers in touchdowns. Justin Jefferson is that dude, and he is a special, special football player. Yeah, Jefferson is exactly that. He is a special football player. He is, I don't want to say he's everything Diggs-wise, because Diggs has some experience on him. But Jefferson shows no signs of slowing down. He is going to blow his way past Thielen into the alpha role and stay there for some time. He is extremely talented, makes plays every week, had another couple of touchdowns this week. Um, One was late, and you can argue that it was garbage time. But if you go back and look at the individual play by Jefferson, the effort, 
it was still a really good play regardless of how far his team was down. He is a guy that is a problem already. And six weeks into a guy's NFL career, that's something to say. That That's not... I don't throw that up there lightly, but like giving Justin Jefferson as an offensive assignment to one of your corners is not something any of them should take lightly. I don't care how good they are because he's going to test them. Yeah, I mean, he's, again, like we said, six weeks into his career, and he's not far behind John Ross's career yardage, who's been in the <laughs> league for almost four seasons now. Yeah, no, he's like, a special player, and we're going to see a lot from him. I I don't enjoy him being in the division, and eventually, if the Vikings find a way to move on from Kirk Cousins, uh, whoever comes into that scenario is going to be extremely pleased that they have Justin Jefferson to throw to. 100%. What do you got for Lions-Jags? Lions-Jags, DeAndre Swift's week. We knew it was coming, and he showed up. Uh, he is splitting time again in a very talented backfield. They imported Adrian Peterson and Adrian Peterson is still producing, had another touchdown in short yardage this year. Carry on Johnson, who were both fans of uh, a very strong runner. And then Deandre Swift, the highly drafted rookie. So he's been kind of biding his time. This was the week he averaged over eight yards per carry, ended up with two scores, hundred plus yards on the day um, and looked very good doing it. And again, like I said earlier in the podcast, sometimes offenses just take a while to figure out, or maybe coaching staffs just take a while to figure out what runners really like to do and how they're good at it, how you should serve it up and how you should sequence it. And I think that was a little bit of the case. Everybody was just kind of getting used to the drill. DeAndre Swift was trying to understand how his linemen were going to block. He looked very much like the back he did at Georgia, which is explosive, uh, very quick, stressing defenses, physical. He ended up with a touchdown up the middle as well, um, not just some long outside score with his speed. Doesn't offer a lot in the passing game quite yet, but that will come. Um, Matt Stafford throws a pretty good screen ball, and DeAndre Swift is dangerous with those as well. I think this probably moves him up to number one in the order. They've seen why they drafted him. They've seen what he offers going forward and the pop he can give their offense, the balance he can give that kind of stafford Galladay connection on the ground. Um, great week for DeAndre Swift. Again, kind of a bummer as a Bears fan. Knew he was talented. Was hoping they wouldn't figure him out quite this soon, um, but they did. Uh, on the other side, Minshew just heaved up an INT early in the game. Just a moon ball. He also got strip sack and lost it in the second quarter. Looks like a completely different player than he did in week one. He's still a gamer. Ended up with a good scramble TD in the third. But that first week, he looked so polished, on time, on target. A great movement in the pocket. I sung his praises he's not playing like that right now and and Jacksonville's struggling because of it um one of our favorite players uh on the Lions side uh Uruwarie, the corner from Penn State great deflection on the slant near the goal line to force a turnover on downs just a classic sort of slant technique if you want to go back and check it out um very good corner I know they drafted Jeff Akuda and that got a lot of attention but we were both kind of high on Oroare, and he played great uh, this week. Uh, Keenan Cole, another decent day for Jacksonville. We mentioned him earlier um, in the year on the podcast as a sort of uh, 
strong supporting receiver for Jacksonville. Just keeps making big catches. A um, little bit like Preston Williams we mentioned at the top of the show. One of those guys that Minshew goes to in a pinch, and he came up big three or four times. Um, overall, uh, Lions take a pretty good win. Uh, Jacksonville looks to be fading a little bit. James Robinson's success is dimmed as well. Um, that defense doesn't quite seem to be hitting on all the cylinders it was before. So Jacksonville fading a little bit, Lions surging a little bit, and a big day for Andre Swift, for DeAndre Swift. Would you believe it if I told you that Amani Orwarie, uh had less target, even on same number of coverage snaps, less targets than Kyle Fuller, uh, better passer rating allowed than Kyle Fuller, and over twice as many PBUs as Kyle Fuller, no touchdowns given up, obviously no picks, uh, but as a cover defender, he leads Detroit in coverage snaps, meaning he's been on the field more than anybody else, and he's probably their best corner right now. And, that, and that's, that's a testament to his talent because I think he had kind of an up-and-down uh, rookie year. But now, in, in year two, he's he's kind of the guy there until Lakuda yeah. ends up kind of, you know, working out. Lakuda's had a really rough, uh, rough start to his uh, career. He's given up twice as many yards as as Amani Oruarie on fewer coverage snaps. Like, he's he's really gotten picked on. But Oruarie, for a fifth-round pick, is playing – like the first round talent that you and I thought he was. So uh, yeah, to your point, he was so much better than a fifth round pick. I would have said second at most. And again, that was just if he didn't continue to progress. But again, since Darius Slay left town, he's really taken up that mantle and said, no, this is my spot. Uh, I don't care who you drafted. And he's playing like that. He's a very physical corner. He plays with edge. He's technically very smart. If you go back and look at that goal line deflection he had this week, it's, I hesitate to call any coverage perfect, but he was in a really, really, really good spot. There was almost no way to complete that ball, and he made the play, I don't want to say easily, but he made it look easy. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I want to talk about the football team taking on the slightly better football team known as the New York Giants this week. (laughs) Uh, the, The NFC East, can we just fire them into the sun at this point? So, do you know who... Nora Princiati is, or Nora Princiati, I don't know how to pronounce her name. I I apologize for butchering your name, Nora. Used to write for the Boston Papers. She was a Pats reporter, and now she writes for The Ringer. Yeah. Yeah, she posted on Twitter, has anybody tried putting the NFC East in rice? (laughs) (laughs) And I responded, we did, but somebody stole the rice because they thought it was worth more. Oh God, it's just so hard to watch. It's Every such a garbage week fire. We get subjected it's to, to really, this. really terrible. I and and there's still like four or five NFC East primetime games left this year. Like I, I, I know that part. Is and one of them's this Thursday. They have to get flexed. Like mercy rule. They have to get flexed because they're. It's it's just so awful. I mean, the Cowboys game was difficult to sit through on many levels and you had the cardinals on the other side who were actually fairly interesting um and look dallas has tons of weapons like not that it would happen but just for the fun of it deadline trade matt ryan goes to the cowboys i i mean i know the dead cap hit is a is a thing uh i almost 
if Atlanta ends up even within like earshot of the number one pick, I wouldn't be surprised if they try to do something with that Matt Ryan contract to make him tradable. Yeah, but then, I mean, like, come on, you, you put Matt Ryan at the trigger of Gallup, Cooper, CeeDee Lamb, Zeke, like, I, I... I'm sorry, I'd buy tickets to that because you know they're going to put up some points. Their defense has been abysmal, but all of a sudden that would be interesting and or fun. I might tune in. And again, some of those primetime games for the NFC East might not be so horrible. Uh, But geez, as it sits right now, it's going to be a slog. Yeah, I... Daniel Jones, we've talked about his problems over and over again, but I will say this, uh, the dude can run. That 49-yarder was a beauty. Yeah, uh, tremendous the passing fake. passing is an issue, but the yeah. running's fine. <laughs> tremendous fake to free him up. And again, passing, if he has time in the pocket and he's not pressured, he can throw, he can live up to his nickname. He can be Danny Dimes. But if Daniel Jones is troublesome at QB, uh, Kyle Allen's just plain trouble. There, there's no, yeah. There's no way to mince words about what Kyle Allen did this week. It was rough i know they're trying to protect alex smith he's not any better i cannot believe that your chances with dwayne haskins are worse than what kyle allen put on the field because look he's trying really hard it's not that he's given up but he's just not playing at an nfl speed right now and it makes it really difficult to watch Supposedly the Haskins thing was like an attitude issue or a... Yeah, I heard he like, talked I, a bunch I, of shit about his stats in a loss and that caused a division in the in the locker room, which I can understand. And, and Ron Rivera being a uh, noted player's uh, coach went, okay, that's it, rookie. You know, not rook, but you don't get to do that. And we're basically benching you hard. We're throwing you into the doghouse. Um, and I could, I could understand that, but boy, a couple more weeks of Kyle Allen, they're going to have to rethink that decision and say, okay, may a couple, we're sorry. Uh, Haskins, could you, could you come throw the ball for us a little bit? Because Terry McLaurin's about ready to riot. Or if they don't want to play him, just trade him to Pittsburgh. Yeah. Get something for him because he is the, I think he's the most, promising quarterback on the roster without really any stretch or hyperbole uh whether or not he can win him any games that might be a stretch but uh boy watching kyle allen for the rest of the season i feel extremely sorry for the washington faithful uh if they have to do that because he's not an nfl product right now no i i don't know maybe we'll see trevor lawrence there next year because it seems to me like the Dwayne haskins era is already over yeah uh for one reason or another and if it is, again, just trade him to Pittsburgh. Get him out of there. Like, if you're not going to use him, just get him out of there. Because Pittsburgh, they're looking for a guy uh, that they can groom behind Ben. And they've already taken players that were disgruntled um, but talented with other teams. Minka obviously had shown it on the field already that he could be a great player. So, obviously, he warranted a first-round pick. But Minka had disagreements with coaches and, and you know, was getting into them. Uh, getting into it with the uh, Brian Flores, and he got traded, and all of a sudden became a you know Pro Bowl Pro Bowl guy for for the Steelers, and justified that first round pick. Like you could probably toss a day three pick at Washington at this point, and just say like, we'll take Haskins off your hands, and if he if he doesn't work out, whatever, it's a day three pick. Who cares? Like it, it's a guy who just got drafted in the first round two years ago, uh, who's got immense talent, and you've got nobody 
Yeah, <laughs> and showed some progress that. at the end of last year. That's the thing. His last six games of last year, he made good strides. He didn't really carry that momentum into this season, but it's not like he is bereft of, of talent or the ability to improve. And if you believe that your quarterback coach and offensive coordinator can can mold what he's got and his skills are quite frankly not all that different than big ben's physically um he you know he fits your offense it's not like you're trying to you know replace ben with a kyler clone and say do everything the same uh yeah there's there's more than one team he lines up with as a decent backup and if washington's not going to use him there's no reason to relegate him to to third string slash inactive status for the rest of the season when you could get something out of him if you're not going to play him so fascinating situation to watch unfold but unfortunately kyle allen at quarterback is not fascinating no oh i just i don't want to watch this freaking division anymore but anyway uh moving on to broncos pats again two teams that I, i find way more fascinating than anybody in the nfc east this year uh despite their own trials and tribulations uh cam newton returned to the lineup looked pretty rusty uh both of his picks were off deflections, I know, but the pocket presence was not very Cam-like. There was a, a sack by Anthony Ciccolo where, I mean, he's you see the blitz coming. You know your left tackle's blocking inside out, so he's going to pick up the linebacker, which means the outside linebacker's going to come free eventually after the tight end finishes his chip. And he's sitting there, and he's sitting there, and he's sitting there, and four seconds tick off the clock, and then he gets drilled from behind. It's like, buddy... It, it, you got to get rid of the ball. You can't sit there for four seconds against a six-man rush and not expect to get killed. So pretty pretty rough outing for Cam, in my opinion. He didn't look like himself, and uh, they ended up losing the game because of it. Yeah, his you, you nailed it. The pocket presence, or what I would just call the lack of a clock. Like, Cam's been in the league well long enough. And, and look, played at a very high level in college, too. Like, he has been a quarterback long enough to have that clock and he is not a guy that we talk about like daniel jones that really lacks that clock or lacks that sense of a rush can understand hey i've been here long enough i'm about to get creamed i should start looking for an out and then pull my eyes back up once i figure out where i'm going to escape to there were times this week that i was literally saying to the tv cam move cam no cam you've been there too long oh oh, that was rough, and it happened over and over again, and it ended up costing them the game. He had some big scrambles in Cam-like fashion. He did have some completions down the field, but that pocket presence in general really doomed the Patriots this year, and it was very un-Cam-like, for lack of a better term. Yeah, he just he flat-out looked rusty. So I, I know he's coming off um, you know, having COVID, not practicing and stuff like that, which can throw off the rhythm of a quarterback, especially a quarterback who... He wasn't even there for, for the whole offseason, showed up late so because the you know got signed way late in the offseason, all that kind of stuff. So he still doesn't really have a full grip of this offense or chemistry with his receiver. So I'm willing to forgive it. Um, but at the same time, like this is a division that is very competitive this year because Buffalo's good and Miami's already better than I think a lot of people expected. Um uh, I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, New England's third in the division right now, which I can't remember the last time they were ever third in the division after six weeks. Uh, it it might, might be two decades since that's happened. I don't, I don't think it ever happened in the Tom Brady era. 
other than maybe when Tom missed 2008. But even then, they still won 10 games that week. So I don't, I don't think they were even third then. So this is uh, kind of uncharted territory for the Patriots. Like, they really got to get it going, and they can't afford these bad games from Cam anymore because if they have another couple, one of them, or another couple bad games, they might be out of this division. Like, it's the Jets are terrible, but the rest of it's highly competitive. Um, and I will say you mentioned Juwan Bentley having a big shot of the week candidate here with his run stop in the red zone, which I, I did take a look at just before uh, we started this show. and he's He only moves in one direction, and that's straight, but if he lines you up and hits you, Juwan Bentley, the human Coke can, will absolutely ruin your day. Yeah, he had a good sack earlier in the game, too. Uh, so there were two candidates here, but his run stop in the red zone was immediate and forceful. Like The running back folded and kind of laid down backwards. They knew he was coming. He cleaned him up. Uh, so Juwan Bentley, not a name a lot of people outside of New England might know, um, had a very forceful day. A couple of big impact plays showed up. Um, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention McManus, the kicker for Denver, really won this game for them. Uh, and great to see Philip Lindsay sort of back in driving. He's been injured a bit, been out of the lineup. Um, he is a guy that makes this offense tick. Uh, Drew Locke was also coming back from injury. Didn't look particularly sharp either. Um, Threw the ball, but not with his sort of trademark deep spiral. The ball seemed to be coming out of his hand a little bit fluttery. Um, Again, just sort of getting back in the swing of things. I don't think it's a death knell for Drew Locke, but Philip Lindsay sort of driving the rock for Denver uh, certainly helped them. But honestly, their, their kicker won the game for him. And you know, wins are hard to come by in the NFL. And if you can take Bill Belichick and the Patriots down with your kicker, uh, good on you. You better do it. Yeah, Drew Locke became the youngest uh, starting quarterback ever to uh, to win against Bill Belichick in New England, by the way. So not that really? he did a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. I believe it was like 23 years and whatever number of days. But wow. uh, he's the youngest to do it. And it, it's it, impressive. Obviously, no, it, it, and it's... It, it's an impressive win for the Vikings for Vic Fangio's squad to to take on what I would consider a a better the Vikings coach team. What's that? The Vikings? No, I said Vic Fangio. Oh, I thought you said the Vikings and Vic Fangio. It's like, wait, what? I don't think I said the Vikings. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. maybe that stone beer is stronger than I thought it was, it's but no. 10:30 no. at night, whatever. Yeah. Big <laughs> big win for Vic Fangio to to beat Bill Belichick kind of at his own game. And again, if you catch Cam at low ebb and you can take advantage, you you darn well do it. The NFL's a meritocracy. They don't they don't at the end of the year say, "Well, those two wins don't really count as much." They're they're wins. And, and they're tough to come by, so you take the ones you can get. But moving on to Browns-Steelers, we were both really looking forward to this game because the Browns' offensive line and the Steelers' defensive line, two of the best in the business, top of their respective rankings. This was going to be a, a war in the trenches. Um, Steelers kind of <laughs> ended this battle before it started. They, they beat up on the Browns, and... I really think I've got a theory that the Steelers offensive line took some, uh, let's say, umbrage or offense at the fact that everybody talked all week about the Cleveland offensive line being so good. The Steelers offensive line came out, controlled the point of attack. James Conner over 100 yards. Steelers really looked dominant at the point of attack offense or defense all day. And the score really reflected that. The Steelers just took it to the Browns. To be fair, Cleveland was missing both of their starting safeties. 
Um, Minka had a big pick six to contribute. The, the Steelers just kind of got rolling. And when they do, they're tough to stop. They take divisional games very, very seriously. Uh, I believe there was plenty of bulletin board material. Baker Mayfield looked a little shook. He thinks he's Deshaun Watson, but he doesn't deliver at the end of the play like Deshaun does. Um, so they're still adjusting to that. This is a learning experience for Kevin Stefanski and his staff. They they found out what the Steelers are like kind of at full throat, and uh, they'll be more ready next time. Whether or not they win, we'll see. But uh, the Steelers kind of said, yeah, all that uh, you know preseason, this is your division to lose stuff. Nah, division still goes through us. Yeah, this was one of those games where it was ten to nothing, and I already considered it over because I was like, "There's against this defense, ten points is is kind of an insurmountable lead, it, especially for a Browns offense that is structured the way it is, where if they have to throw a lot, uh, in, like if if it, if the offense has to run through Baker Bayfield dropping back to pass, it's not gonna work. It, it's just not. It, so not against this defense. As soon as it hit ten nothing, I was like, "Well, this one's over." <laughs> it was, and I was right. Unfortunately, yeah, I was gonna say you're not wrong. Uh, so I wasn't wrong. Sounds sounds rough, but yeah. you're not wrong. Hopefully, they have Nick Chubb for the for the next one because if they can just run through Chubb and Hunt and you know really just have Baker just throwing screens and boots and all that kind of stuff that doesn't really require him to do a whole lot, then I think they have a shot. But if it's just a Baker Mayfield versus Ben Roethlisberger kind of game, or rather Baker Mayfield versus TJ Watt kind of game, yeah, no, they're screwed. It's not going to happen. But so little whisper, little whisper in Ryan Pace's ear because David Njoku wants a trade. He's he's not he's he's not disgruntled. He just he would like a different opportunity. He's sitting sort of third behind Austin Hooper, and um, just want to whisper in Ryan Pace's ear like David Njoku for like a like a day three pick maybe <laughs> if you could do it like maybe maybe a third like i don't want to give them up thirds but look you could have uh, nick Foles loves his tight ends obviously he's been throwing to him a ton uh, jimmy graham not great between the 20s awesome in the red zone but not great between the 20s and in joku's kind of the opposite pretty good between the 20s not great in the red zone you could have another target for nick Foles to throw to you might be able to get him on the cheap just just give him a call that's all i'm saying ryan yeah, you know what's better than having four tight ends on the roster? Oh, Jesus. Five tight ends. Eleven. <laughs> but they don't really have four, do they? Because Demetrius Harris, like, let's be honest, that experiment's over. Like, it's, yeah, that experiment's over. <laughs> I don't I so don't disagree, gonna, but I do, I do yeah. find Chicago's fascination with tight ends to be fascinating. Because <laughs> they can never. We like tight ends a lot. We just yeah. don't like quarterbacks all that much. Anyways, yeah, well. uh, onwards anyway. and sideways. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Bengals Colts. This was uh, oddly enough the best performance by the Colt or by the Bengals offensive line all year, and the worst performance by the Colts defensive line all year. Uh, DeForest Buckner had a good day pass rushing, but uh, I did not feel like he had a good day run stopping, which is odd for him. You know, he kind of freelanced a little bit. Uh, jumped out of his gap a little bit too much. Kind of, uh, Grover Stewart was really the only uh, defensive lineman for the Colts that I think had a good day defending the run. Uh, it, it almost felt like Buckner was just playing the pass or playing the run on the way to the pass, and it, it didn't work out for him. 
not saying that the Bengals had a dominant day on the ground, but they were not as gap sound as they normally were. Primarily, I think, because Buckner was was freelancing a little bit too much. So I want to see him kind of dial that in going forward and, and really wait for third down before he just starts, you know, jumping jumping out of his gap and doing crazy stuff because at the end of the day like (laughs) run defense is all about discipline you can't backdoor every single block i I know you have the talent too but even jj watt doesn't do that so just stop please (laughs) that's my that's my plea i'm sorry i'm just giggling because i can never ever forget one of my what one of my previous coaches used to say about third down pass rushing from interior defensive linemen which was pin their ears back and butter the tops of their heads Is a very odd saying, but it sticks with me to this day when I think about folks who are just, like you said, absolutely playing the pass first. And if they get a piece of the run, so be it. Um, you know, pin your ears back and just go for it. And Buckner looked like that a little bit on Sunday. I think it had a little bit too much faith in, in Okariki and Stewart to kind of make, which to be fair to him, you know, the linebackers and, and Grover did a great job of kind of playing around his freelancing the other five weeks of the year, but uh, didn't work out so well against Cincinnati. And they almost lost that game because Colts offense is a little bit rough uh, as well, in my opinion. Um, ended up squeaking out a win, but not not by much. I, I will say Joe Burrow, though, again, another valiant effort, 300 yards passing, only took two sacks, which by his standards is a freaking miracle. Uh, another 300 <laughs> yards passing. And uh, he, when, when are people going to stop playing zone against him? Because he just he just he kills uh, it. Any time that they watch this film, I I would say if anybody believes that you should play zone on a that you should give Joe Burrow a regular diet of zone. A you didn't watch his LSU tape because his eyes lit up big when you started playing zone because he was going to absolutely pick you apart and you know <laughs> pile your bones on a plate. Uh, but he did it this week against the Colts. Like they played zone. He, I'm not saying he's struggling against man. He's made some good completions, especially down the sideline to T Higgins against man, but against zone, if you give him any kind of time, which has been the Achilles heel of the Bengals is their offensive lines, not giving anybody any time, but this week, strangely, they did. Again, we talked about it. They didn't change personnel at all. They just gave him, you know, up to about two seconds, which I'm sure feels like an eternity to Joe in this point in the season. And if you play zone against him, he just waited. Oh, open spot, hit him. Open spot, hit him. Like Joe Burrow loves carving up zone. So just note to defensive coordinators around there who are going to play against Joe Burrow anytime soon. If you give him a steady diet of zone, it's your results are not going to be great at the end of the day. Yeah, he just he he gets yards, man. Like he's I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up pushing for the rookie yardage record cuz it seems like every week he's just got 300, 300, 300, 300. Uh he's he's up there in the charts in terms of uh total passing yards in the league. And even though the results in terms of like wins and losses and all that kind of stuff hasn't been there, uh to me just getting production out of this roster with that offensive line uh it says a lot to Burrow's talent. I think he's going to be a really good one. Yeah, if they had one more wide receiver, they've got Boyd and T. Higgins. Well, T. Higgins and Burrow are going to be special for a while. They're developing that kind of strong connection that we're going to see be very productive for years to come. Uh, Tyler Boyd started to have some more of those catches. Uh, If they get one more wide receiver, because A.J. Green had a big third down catch this week, but 
he's pretty well cooked. Uh, they need one more contributing wide receiver that adds a little bit more depth to that. And then, of course, we've talked about offensive line over and over again. You add that to Joe Mixon, uh, maybe throw a decent move tight end from the later rounds in the mix, and Joe Burrow is going to be cooking with gas for a long time. Yeah, he's he's a special one, folks. I know yeah, we're not the first I just to tell you not that, to but... die. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's my my wish for Joe Burrow and and like you say he's racking up yards and this year uh, this week it actually looked pretty good he wasn't on his back every other down which was refreshing I'm sure to him as well um, but let's move Jets Dolphins uh, as a Bears fan Adam Shaheen scoring TDs is just really jarring so you're gonna have to give me a moment um, had a couple of big catches <laughs> including a TD this week and it it's just so odd because he never did that in Chicago so you got to give us Bears fans a break Miles um, Gaskin we're just gonna say we told you so 126 yards total 91 on the ground um, uh, if you follow Kay Adams uh, she jumped on with Rich Eisen pregame time on Sunday gave three fantasy plays that she thought were really really good for this particular weekend she led off with miles gaskin and i was like ha ha we talked about him last week on bootleg so miles gaskin still doing his thing um not that anybody needs to hear this but i'm gonna say it anyways joe flacco is washed it is over over with a capital o-v-e-r over he took a 28 yard sack this week he runs like a little deer (laughs) on ice uh he made multiple ill-advised throws like joe flacco the quarterback is over maybe he's gonna make a good commentator maybe he's gonna sell insurance i'm not sure which he needs to not be quarterbacking any football team in the pros at this point they've got james morgan who is a rookie that i kind of liked do i think he's a ton better than joe flacco no do i think he has a ton more potential i absolutely do so i'd much rather if i was a jets fan be watching james morgan's development if there is going to be such a thing um, as opposed to any more of Joe Flacco, because he didn't show me any signs of like, Oh, Oh, that's the thing you can do. That'll win us games. Uh, there was none of that. It, it was, it was really a sad performance. Um, and a quick shout out to bootleg favorite, Brandon Jones, the safety for Miami, the third round with a flashy tackle for loss in this game. Uh, he's been solid, but not flashy so far. Made a very nice flashy TFL against the Jets, so we'll bring that up. Uh, for those of you that are pining for us to talk about the buttception by Marcus May, eh, we gave Marcus May some love earlier on. He's a great player. Um, check out the play. It's interesting. Uh, does it rate overall in the scale of things? Not not really. <laughs> Please just fire Adam Gase. I, that's all I care yeah, about. Yeah, that's, that's the main takeaway from all this is players play better after he's gone, so just get him gone um get a coach in there that can start to work with what is really a rebuilding roster i will say the new york jets running game had some sparks um not just frank gore million year old frank gore um they had some some decent looks from their other running backs again nothing substantive but enough to kind of come in and work with uh as a coach so uh, they have a rough roster right now. It's going to take several seasons for them to sort of climb back to relevance, but Adam Gase is not going to help that, and neither is Joe Flacco. So get those two out of the mix. Uh, see what else you can get. Let James Morgan have some reps and, and go from there. Yeah. Ravens-Eagles. Uh, this was a really fascinating game to me, and the one thing that I found 
well, not one thing, but one of the things that I found fascinating was the kind of uh, anything you can do, I can do better when it comes to quarterback runs. You saw Jalen Hurts uh, get a good 20-yarder out of the Eagles' end zone to kind of give their offense a little bit of a spark. And then uh, the Ravens came back with the exact same play, which uh, our buddy Ben Solak broke down on Twitter. It's a bash GT counter. Uh, which kind of means that the running back is going away from the two polars, and it's it's a design quarterback run. Um, and uh, the Eagles ran it with Hurts, got 20 out of it, and then Lamar ran it. And because he's Lamar, he got, what was it, like a 40-yard touchdown out of it because once he's in the open field, he's gone. And so I, I thought it was interesting of uh, Baltimore is like, oh, okay, so you guys watch Lincoln Riley too. That's cute. Uh, let's, let's run this. <laughs> So that was your version. Here's ours. Pucker up. Yeah, it's better. Uh, And I will say that our guy, Charles Davis, that you used to work with at the NFL Network, had the crystal ball call before the Lamar Jackson TD run. Like two seconds before that ball was snapped, he's like, been a while since we've seen a designated run for Lamar. And bam, he rips that thing off for 40 plus and scores. And I was like... Oh, Charles, you're so perfect. <laughs> and he's got the memory of an elephant. You know, we're oh, down at the senior bowl. The best bowl. football memory I have ever run into personally, for sure. Yeah, best memory. We, we used to play a game, not to get sidetracked, but uh, we used to play a game uh, in the in the pre-show meetings called Stump Charles, where it could be <laughs> any question, pop culture, uh, music, movies, football, you ask him any question, like that dude, he is, I'm not even kidding you, I have, there are very few human beings I've ever met where they legitimately terrified me with their intelligence. Like Charles Charles Davis is an actual no bullshit genius, and he has the greatest memory of any human being I've ever met. Any Anybody. Anybody. And he also happens to be ridiculously nice you will hear this over and over again uh brett was nice enough to introduce me at the senior bowl i have no connection to charles davis obviously he knows brett uh from their past life professionally and he could not have been warmer uh more engaging i recognized he had a new pulse sweatshirt on because i know he has a connection to new pulse uh football I mentioned that a, that a friend of mine went to New Paltz. He asked where I grew up. He knew the college team from there. And, of course, the coach and several players. Um, just So the memory combined with a really genuine and engaging and kind human being, um, CD is amazing. Just a, just a great, great dude. He's an android. <laughs> he's just yeah he's i do think he's robot. an alien from another planet because nobody <laughs> should have that many talents but uh no great call on that lamar jackson td run just before it happened and then matt judon man I, do you remember when matt judon was being bounced about like you know preseason as like hey this guy doesn't want to be here he's just trade bait and oh we could trade him at the draft and we could trade him later and oh let's before the season starts we could trade matt judon just never ended up getting traded and just kind of goes back and plies his trade for the raiden ravens and blows up like seals this game with a huge stop destruction of a two-point conversion and it's kind of like oh yeah everybody forgot about matt judon being really really good and you know there he is uh just blowing it up and uh you know we could nominate that for our bootleg shot of the week what do you think i mean it's a it's a huge hit and a big play i'd say that qualifies let's throw that in for a nomination 
yeah, big spot too. Uh, the spot really, I think, elevates that one. The hit itself was just kind of a mash, but the fact that it really said, "Nope, you're not winning this game. We're taking it." Uh, it Matt Judon continues to make plays. Really good player. I am still surprised he didn't get moved because there's a lot of teams that need edge help, and Judon could help a lot of teams. I was convinced he was going to Buffalo, and it just somehow never happened. I, you know, I the other one that we convinced. talked about that seemed a little bit more of a stretch just scheme wise but again it couldn't hurt right is the seahawks oh yeah they could, well i don't know if they're gonna unload them now but uh no 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 it, they're not gonna unload them now but at the time like we were talking about like bill seemed like a very good fit and like it was like hawks have no pass rush like matt judon yeah. sitting there you could go get him and it's not necessarily a john schneider move but at the same time you know would they be happier if they had him right now on that defense like Hell yeah. Better than Daryl Taylor. So, speaking of the Bills, uh, this is a game that we talked about going to. Now, this is pre-COVID. Back when I was at your house, we were kind of lining out the schedule for 2020, looking at the games, thinking, oh, man. And then the schedule came out a little bit later, and we were like, oh, these are the games we want to go to. And then COVID hit, and that was the end of that. I'm kind of glad we didn't go to this game. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, and the weather was miserable. It rained and was cold throughout the game. Don't think I would have wanted to sit through that one on the sidelines. Uh, But still a fascinating pairing. Um, One of our favorites, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, had a night. We envisioned this kind of night for him before he got drafted. Once he got drafted and went to the Chiefs, we knew he was going to have this kind of night. He had that kind of night. 26 for 161 rushing on a rainy evening in Western New York and really just sort of crushed the soul out of the Bills. Um, Bills D looked a little bit hobbled. A couple of defenders coming back from injury. And Josh Allen had another topsy-turvy week, second one in a row. Ended up 14-27 for a buck 22, two TDs. So still contributing, but not the same sort of dominating in command, in control. And he he said as much in his postgame press conference. He said, if this team's going to win, if my team is going to win, I have to play better. They expected of me and I didn't deliver it. And he knows, um, again, it's kind of like Aaron Rodgers. I'm not thinking it's a death sentence or he's fallen off the wagon or anything else. It's more... Look, he knows he has to play better. He has struggled for a couple of weeks compared to his incredibly hot start. And he knows he's got to get back to basics and make those things happen, not miss the easy plays. Um, Read defenses just a little bit better. Um, Overall, it was an interesting game, not tremendous. It was super early. I had to watch a little bit of it uh, after the fact because it started so early here on the West Coast. Um, but if I told you that the Chiefs and the Bills, after their hot starts, were only going to put up 23 total points in the first half, I think you could have won some money by betting the under on that one. Two very uh, voracious offenses just didn't get it done. Maybe it was conditions. You know, maybe it's just a slow start. Um, Bills have a little bit of work to do here. Chiefs still look like they can win almost any game. Um it was interesting, but uh, I think more interesting from the Bills side as to seeing whether Sean McDermott and his squad can rebound. Uh, Andy Reid and his squad are, are rolling on. They just have so many weapons. It's it's overwhelming. So two things. A, the Bills need Matt Milano. They they cannot function defensively without him. He I know he's kind of a glass cannon, 
uh, but they need him. He's their best coverage linebacker. He's their best run-defending linebacker. Uh, even when the defensive line's getting blown off the ball, which they were, like Matt Milano's the guy who can kind of wiggle through traffic and still make a play and kind of limit the damage, they they got absolutely shredded without him on the field. So they need him back as soon as they can get him. Uh, secondly, that run-heavy game plan, in my opinion, contributed to Josh Allen's struggles because he's a guy that typically needs to get in a groove. He needs as many plate appearances as he can get because he's a home run hitter. And uh, so even if he's he's not somebody who's uh, he's like the anti-Ichiro, you know, he's not going to get on base all the time. But if you give him enough uh, at-bats, he'll eventually crush one into the gap. And he wasn't getting that many at-bats. He only ran 50 plays on offense compared to the Chiefs that had 73. Uh, they, the Chiefs had 15 more minutes of time of possession, too. Like, they just they didn't get enough possessions. They didn't get enough plays for Allen to hit on those big shots. And in games where he started slow, um, that's when I think they've, they've really struggled is because then they're giving more possessions and more possessions and more possessions away, and their run defense isn't, or their defense period, to be honest, isn't good enough to buy time for Allen to finally get hot. In the games where he was hot early, like against Miami, where you know they're, they're, he's hitting on those deep crossers and everything like that, and he comes out on fire, they're fine. Uh, but it's the slow starting games. They just they don't have the defense anymore that can uh, withstand slow starts from him. So he's. I think if I was Brian Dable, um, I would really emphasize RPOs and screens, just kind of get him into rhythm, uh, and then just kind of save the shots for for like later in the first quarter or in the second quarter when he's a little bit more warmed up, I guess you could say, because, again, he's he needs as many possessions as he can get. He needs as many layups as he can get uh, before he really starts taking shots because he's, he's not going to start quick most of the time. So I, I think yeah. that, that kind of contributed to game script, and ultimately the game eventually got away from him, and there, there wasn't really anything they could do about it. Yeah, I agree that their defense isn't the sort of – uh, world beater or developing world beater that they had last year. They've had a bunch of injuries. Uh, guys are playing at, at half strength. Uh, you just can't count on the defense to lock it down or, or make as many sort of explosive defensive plays as they used to. And I agree with you on the script early in the game. I, if I was Brian Dable, I might add in a quarterback run pretty early for Josh Allen. Yeah. Because Get him he's hit. a big, he's a big dude. And he's physical, and when he gets into it, like, we forget that Josh Allen's, like, 240 pounds. Like, he's almost cam size, Not quite, but he's he's a big dude, and he runs really well. Get him moving. Get him into the flow of the game. Get some positive yards off a of bootleg or naked, and get him out there. And, like you said, warm him up a little bit, uh, and then see if, if he can start making those rhythm throws that he made earlier in the season. I mean, even Tony Romo said, like, there's some games where he felt like he couldn't be accurate until he got popped. Like, he, he needs... There's there's a lot of guys that feel like they, they need the contact uh, to yep. kind of, like, Focus shock up. their system away. Yeah, or shock yep. them away. Focus up. It. Just give them, give them, like, a a read option or something in the first series. Just something to something to get him into it. And it's, it's hard to explain, but mentally, there's been many quarterbacks that have said, I need to get hit before I can really play well. It sounds like a, an oxymoron, but trust me, it's it's a thing. Um, but with that being said, 
Speaking of getting hit, good lord. Oh, geez. <laughs> the Cardinals beat the shit out of the Cowboys. Uh, and it was, whatever the score was at the end of the game, I can't remember what the exact number was. Uh, it wasn't that close. I can tell you that much. Yeah, it weren't pretty, I'll tell you that. I watched the whole thing and blah. Yeah, we are. Uh, we, we do have another bootleg shot of the week candidate in this game, and that's Buda Baker, who had a monster game. Uh, after being named captain for the night, he had seven tackles, TFL, pass defense, pick, sack, two cube. I mean, he had everything. He stuffed the whole stat sheet. But his blindside sack is the bootleg shot of the week candidate because when he comes around the edge, he is a blur. And he might not be that big, but I'll tell you what, force equals mass times acceleration. And what little mass he has accelerates like a shot out of a cannon. And he just blew up Andy Dalton. Uh, he's a tremendous player. I think he's he showed last night why they paid him so much money because he is a an impact player, uh, literally, <laughs> from yeah. that sack. And he's a tremendous run defender. And he finally got a pick. Finally got a pick. So the monkey's off his back there, too. Uh, he's one of the better safeties in the game. And I'm, I'm so happy he was able to show that in prime time. Yeah, it. he really took that game over. Like you said, he just had... Uh, I, the Cardinals defense in general is is minus some stars. Obviously, Chandler, Chandler Jones has gone down. We said in our preseason preview of the Cardinals that they were very good at their top-level talent, but as soon as people started going down, we weren't so sure of their ability to continue. Sure enough, some people have gone down. Um, and Buddha had to have a game like this. And again, he said that he felt the weight of being named captain for the night and had to perform. He's, he's like, I couldn't, I couldn't not, right? You, you name me captain for the game. I got to show out. And he showed out huge game-changing plays, uh, turnovers that helped his team, uh, you know, hits that got Andy Dalton, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> scared in the pocket for lack of a better term. He just really was a game changer. And uh, it was a very good night for the Cardinals defense, which doesn't necessarily have a lot of bright shining stars. Boot is one of them, uh, but everybody seemed to be getting into the act. Byron Murphy, another fellow sort of UW defensive back from from the Huskies, uh, had a couple of big stops, subbed out a screen, uh, was in on some pass breakups. Just defenses start to kind of resonate right on a certain frequency. Um, people say feed off each other. I hate that saying, but, uh, you know, blood gets in the water, the sharks smell it, and, and they start biting, and that was the Cardinals' defense uh, on Monday night. Yeah, and it, it, beyond the kind of blood in the water feeding frenzy of the Cardinals' defense, which, fun fact, is the number two defense in the NFL right now, uh, despite their injuries and despite Isaiah Simmons weirdly not really playing any snaps because of their, their fascination with Devondre Campbell. Still the number two defense in the league. So they've been managing. Uh, it hasn't always been pretty, but they've been managing. So hats off to them and uh, for, for kind of, you know, cobbling this, this unit together. It's been one of the better ones in the league. Uh, I will say on the other side, Zeke's turnover problem is is becoming an issue. And I, I saw some, some people talking on Twitter about how running back coaches typically do not let running backs wear sleeves because it kind of affects how they feel the ball in their arm uh and they, they kind of lose lose that tactile you know touch yeah. where they can you lose the grip ball. you lose grip uh, and, and so it, it leads to fumbles and zeke's been wearing sleeves and so some people have been saying like hey 
his running back coach needs to say, stop wearing sleeves. Uh, you know, get your skin on the ball so you can feel it and kind of grip it tighter. And uh, it's it's become a problem for them because Zeke's turnovers by himself have led to like almost 30 points, you know, given up by this defense. So it's it's been rough. And obviously Dalton's pick uh, from the non-call on PI from Drake or Patrick, we can talk about that. But even if even if that pick didn't happen, the, the Cowboys were not going to win this game. Like they're not a good football team. They're not a well-coached football team. The defense is a complete and utter disaster. And the locker room, based on reports today, where they're calling out the coaches, saying they're not anonymous players, reportedly, to Jane Slater, said the coaches are not good at their jobs, they're not teachers, they don't have guys prepared. Like, the locker room already doesn't like this coaching staff. We're a month and a half into this thing. Uh, They're not disciplined on offense. They turn the ball over like crazy. They can't stop anybody. Like, this is a, a terrible football team that happens to be in the lead in a terrible division, but uh, I just I don't see a way out of this. I don't, I don't know if they're going to be able to climb out of this hole, especially without Dak Prescott. No, it's it's a gross situation. And uh, one of my colleagues over at Windy City Grand Iron, Robert Schmitz, lives in Dallas, uh, has, has family that are Cowboys fans. He certainly follows the team being in town. He's a Bears fan, but... Um, he said to me earlier this season, and it resonates with me, I've never seen a team more consistently overrated year to year than the Dallas Cowboys, right? Dallas Cowboys yep. always have the talk, right? There's still that sort of vestige, and it is just a vestige at this point of America's team. Um, you know, they're great at this. They're going to do that. They're going to rule this. Fact. Cowboys have not won more than one playoff game in a year since 1996. That is a long stretch, right? And there's always a reason, but the Cowboys fade down the stretch. They never live up to that potential of being contenders, or at least they haven't, in a very long time. People are still talking about the triplets. They brought up the triplets last night on Monday Night Football. Like, Troy Aikman's calling games with Joe Buck, and you're talking about the triplets. Uh, That's a long time, folks. And look, they have talented players. That's not the case. Like, their wide receiver core, one of the most talented in the NFL. Dak, before his injury, playing at an extremely high level. Easily top 10 quarterback in the NFL. Um, The offensive line over the years, again, very talented tons of talent on defense they had jalen smith who's playing very well before this year leighton vander esch who's also playing very well they've had some stars in the secondary they've let them go they've had pass rushers they got demarcus lawrence like lots of guys they drafted neville gallimore we're like yeah awesome um they had tons of talent on that team but they never seem to be able to put it together and look as a fan of the nfc north you got mike mccarthy after he supposedly in air quotes became a changed coach right spent a year retooling himself and what was the first thing he did he handed over the defense to mike nolan like yeah and who's off the the defenders are not resonating to mike nolan you can say whatever you want about mike nolan as a coach uh, i certainly don't know him personally um but his style his methods his communication are not working with the defenders there have been multiple people across the nfl spectrum calling out the cowboys 
just lack of effort more than anything else. And that's a true sign that people aren't just getting it. They can't play fast. Their heads are getting in the way of the abilities. Um, everybody's not on the same page and, and you can't play defense like that. And the Cowboys just can't play defense period. So I don't, I'm with you. I don't see a way that this is suddenly going to turn around and the Dallas Cowboys are going to be good this year. Like they're going to win some games because they have a lot of talent but I don't see any way that this ship gets righted anytime soon. And it the elephant in the room is, if you're Dak Prescott, why would you resign with them? Especially like, if it's the same why? coaching staff. If it's the same coaching staff next year, and you know if Tyron retires, which is a possibility, he's had a lot of injuries, um, there's no guarantee he's going to be there next year. Uh, like you might have Zach and Lyle Collins and like, that's it on the offensive line. So I, it's, it's going to be rough for pass protection. He's got receivers. Sure. But again, the defense is still probably going to be awful unless they fire Nolan and bring in somebody like say Wade Phillips, who has a, a reputation for fixing defenses immediately. Um, but if McCarthy's still there, like there's other teams that can pay him 40 million a year that have better offensive lines and better coaching staffs, like say the Colts, like that. I I don't. I know he wants to play for Dallas because he loves Dallas. Um, yeah. But if I'm his agent, I, I might legitimately ask him, like, look, this team didn't didn't want to commit to you. <laughs> like they uh-huh. they could have signed. You know, there was a kind of a last minute thing where like Dak said okay I'll sign and then they said it was too late or whatever like they if Dallas really wanted to keep him they could have given him an offer that blew him away and kept him they absolutely could have made that happen it didn't happen and this has been a dance that's been going on for more than just this offseason like this has been a thing that's been happening for two years now are you going to sign Dak are you going to sign Dak are you going to sign Dak never happened they could have done this. They didn't have to sign Zeke. They didn't have to sign Jalen Smith. They didn't have to sign Demarcus Lawrence for $20 million a year. They didn't have to do any of that. They could have signed Dak. And so if I'm his agent, I'm saying, like, are you sure you want to commit to this franchise that's in the toilet that didn't even want to commit to you? Are you sure you want to do that? You can go to Indy, make $40 million a year, and be on a better team tomorrow. Just think about it. It's... Him resigning with yeah. Dallas might not. Those those drums are getting a lot louder because Dallas is flashy, but again, their results are not equal to all that flashy talent. And uh, I know Dak has a loyalty to Dallas, but I think that has limits. And we're going to find out what those limits are pretty soon. Uh, because if Dak heals up well, if the surgery went well and everything, if he is you know back to... Uh, even 85% of his normal, he is going to be a very good quarterback and very good quarterbacks in this league command a premium and Dallas will find out what it's like not to have one. They, they've had at least a high level functioning quarterback for quite some time. You can say what you want about Tony Romo, but he absolutely gave them a chance to win games every week he was out there. And it's been a long time since Dallas has had no quarterback and if you know they swing and a miss on somebody in the draft thinking they're going to get another Dak, there is a very decent possibility, better than average, that they will end up with an empty hand. And at that point, 
uh, you're right back to the Andy Dalton experiment, and we saw how that went last night. So um, not particularly great, Bob, uh, but we'll see. If I'm if I'm Dak, I don't just auto-resign with the Cowboys because there, there are a lot of things to consider there. So... Uh, one general trend we wanted to talk on is that wider, wide receiver tap pass sweep, motioning a player in front of the QB. We brought it up a couple of weeks ago. It is all the rage. More and more teams are doing it. San Francisco scored on it this week. So did the Cardinals. Um, you wanted to say something specifically about the, about Cliff's version with the Cardinals. Yeah. Just while we're still on the Dallas thing. Part of the reason why we're criticizing Mike Nolan so much is because his players are not understanding like simple high school concepts, which is replacing a crack block. This is not something that should be foreign to a professional cornerback that has played football his entire life. When you see motion and you see your safety gets cracked and you're the corner and you're the only guy left on the edge and you are off and nobody's, you have nobody to cover, your eyes are on the play, you should immediately be replacing outside because you are the only guy that can get there. And I, I don't know who the corner was on the edge because, to be honest, it doesn't even matter. They've all been horrible this year. So I don't even know what number it was. But he's, he literally stood there, saw the safety get cracked by, I think it was Larry Fitzgerald, uh, and then just watched Christian Kirk run another seven yards before he finally decided to move his feet, and he got there too late, and Kirk scored. That was an entirely preventable touchdown. I know we talked about how our defense is going to adjust to this. You play your freaking assignment. That's how you adjust to it. When you see a guy get crack blocked, you replace. You come down in the flat. You force him back inside, or you just make the tackle yourself. Like At some point, it becomes an execution thing because... It's just another way to get into crack toss. It's the same concept. It's just a little bit faster. And if you're not thinking fast, then you're just going to get absolutely run over. So, again, this is kind of a rehashing of of some stuff we talked about earlier in the show, but it's also just an indictment on Mike Nolan's lack of ability to get these guys prepared with basic defensive concepts and basic fundamentals. Like, this is the worst, arguably the worst defense I've ever seen in my life. Because they they don't understand how to play football. Like it's not even a talent thing. They just they don't understand basic football. And I, I don't get it. Yeah, it's bad when they're being outplayed by folks in their region who happen to play in the Big Twelve. Yes. Good lord. Like it's I'm honestly, last year's defense, last year's Oklahoma defense with Neville Gallimore might have actually been better. Because they had Parnell Motley, who's a corner who knows what he's doing. They had Kenneth Murray, who's a linebacker who flies all over the field. Like, I get it. Like, they don't have NFL talent, but it, at least there were games where they looked like they knew what football was. I I can't say the same thing for this Dallas defense this year. It's yeah, I mean, awful. all you have to do if you really want to know sort of the heart of Dallas on defense right now, if there is such a thing, is the late run by Kenyon Drake. Yeah. Right. No to blow effort. that game wide open. It just, they just sort of stood up and went, ah, oh, damn, he got through the crease. Oh, look at that. He's going to run the rest. Oh, nope. That's a long run touchdown right through the freaking middle. That is a did between you see the tackles run. Smith, did you see Jalen Smith running after that thing? Like he's trying to hold a ruler between his cheeks. Like it's just, nah. it's like, what are you doing, dude? No, it at was least not. Try to act like you care. Yeah. It has not been. It has not been pretty for Dallas. I don't think it's going to be any prettier for Dallas until 
uh, they make a change on defense. The the team is really not resonating to the coaching staff. That's pretty obvious. But uh, we are at the two-hour mark again. We know how that happens. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we got through all the games. Um, I got through my beer. I know you probably got through yours. These are, uh, just as a warning to anybody who might go out and pick one of these up, these are for serious. <laughs> 9.4% in a can. Um, a, you better like IPA. It's a good, strong IPA in terms of flavor. Also a good, strong IPA in terms of alcohol. Um, Stone makes a very well-crafted beer, but this one is... Um, I'll just say NFA, not <laughs> fing around. Um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's a very good beer, but uh, don't don't trifle with more than a few of these because uh, they'll send you um, good stuff from Stone. Um, hope you enjoyed your shot as well, and uh, we will vote again or have folks vote again this week on the bootleg shots of the week. Um, Brett will get those posted up on YouTube and and maybe put up a Twitter poll to back it up as well. We had a lot of fun with that last week. We hope you did as well. Keep those comments and good reviews coming for us. Um, If you like the content, share it with a friend. Uh, The more, the merrier. We're having a great time. We're at almost 8,000 subscribers on YouTube and uh, many more on the regular podcasting sites as well. Uh, Couldn't enjoy bringing this content to you more every week. You guys have been tremendous in your feedback, in your interaction, uh, in your support of the podcast in general. Can't thank you enough. So uh, get geared up. Halloween's coming soon. We got more good football on the horizon. Uh, you can follow Brett, of course, on Twitter at Brett Coleman. You can follow me at the Draftsman FB. Um, Brett's got his stuff going on in the film room on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. My other work shows up on Windy City Gridiron uh, and the Bears Over Beers podcast. So check all that stuff out. But for now, we're going to cut it loose and get out of here. So keep looking at it, and we will talk to you soon. Later. Later.